there's a whole dimension to the UFO phenomenon that is completely unspoken of, only which is a few things we've glanced upon today. But see, that's kind of what I do. I'm out, I'm way outside the box. Ladies and gentlemen, Whatever's going on here, we know there's one, more than one race involved, and they do seem to be in one big conspiracy to keep their presence away from man. This is not a U.S. government secret. This is everybody's secret against us. They ended up uh, murdering their lover's wife because it, they were convinced this person was an evil reptilian queen. What? Because they were so... Yes, absolutely. Wow, I've never because heard that story. This individual said that they had a phone call from somebody saying that if you don't tell Tony and John that they're not to go out there, they're going to end up underground and they're going to end up dead. Historically, there was a connection between reptilian humanoids and human females where women had been saying that they were made love to or had sexual intercourse with a reptilian humanoid at night. Oh boy. And, um, and this, of course, is great radio. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. I am absolutely thrilled to be bringing you this installment of the program as we are getting back to our esoteric roots and welcoming paranormal pioneer John Rhodes for discussion on his groundbreaking work studying the terrestrial reptoid hypothesis, or, as it is more commonly known, reptilians. Over the course of this mind-bending conversation, we will learn about how John first discovered stories of reptoids and ended up forming the TRH. We'll discuss how the mainstream reputation and depiction of reptilians contrasts with the information he has collected on the phenomenon over the last two decades. Additionally, we'll hear about underground bases, John's MIB encounter, cattle mutilations, and government tinkering with UFO researchers. Plus, of course, tons and tons more. Folks, this is an absolute barn burner edition of the program, where we explore one of the most controversial and remarkable theories in all of the paranormal world, the terrestrial reptoid hypothesis, with the man who has spent the last 20 years on the trail of the reptilians, John Rhodes. For those of you who are unfamiliar with John Rhodes, please allow me to provide you with a little background on him. John Rhodes, a.k.a. the Crypto Hunter, is one of America's most outspoken and controversial UFO researchers. He is known around the world for his pioneering work researching reports on the reptilian-humanoid contacts and his out-of-the-box perspective regarding UFOs, alien encounters, the hollow earth, secret government technologies, and subsurface facilities. 
John has been a featured speaker at national and international UFO conferences, and his research discoveries have served as platforms for the beliefs of many other notable UFO-slash-conspiracy speakers and authors. He also acts as a professional consultant for literary and broadcast industry projects dealing with UFO-related subjects. His website is www.reptoids.com. Pretty simple, all one word, reptoids.com. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 29th, 2012. John Rhodes, talking about the terrestrial reptoid hypothesis on BOA Audio Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Very excited about the conversation we are about to have. Our guest is really an esoteric pioneer. He's done a tremendous amount of work advancing a theory that is sort of on the peripheral of ufology and cryptozoology and a whole bunch of different genres, if you will, conspiracy and parapolitics as well. And it's a captivating theory. It's troubling it's frightening. Uh, it, it it kind of uh, it, it gets it gets takes some punches sometimes from people in the paranormal community because it's so different. But it is really something kind of chilling, and it resonates with me, and it's always sort of resonated with me. And I've wanted to explore this topic for a long time. I'm talking about the terrestrial reptoid hypothesis, we're going to get into it. At great length here in this conversation with our guest, as I said, he's a pioneer of the esoteric, the crypto hunter himself, John Rhodes. Welcome to BOA Audio, sir. It is a real pleasure to be talking to you. Thank you very much, Tim. I feel the same way. And as I said, I, I've really been fascinated by this topic for a long time. It's 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 really uh, there's something to it. I can't really put my put the words to it, if you will, but I think you kind of know what I mean. There's something about it that. Mm-hmm that resonates on a deeper level. But before we even get into that, tell us about Crypto Hunter John Rhodes. Who are you? Give me some bio background, you know, bring folks up to speed on, on who you are. Um, complex question, but I'll try and narrow it down. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I've been kind of researching esoteric subjects since the early 1990s, um, and my background was in the arts. I also got into the sciences. Um, very interested in the scientific approach to things as I got older. So I kind of like had this good, well-rounded life where my youth, I embraced the arts. And then my, as I got older, I started embracing the sciences. And here I am um, in a position to have um, uh, and kind of like everybody else first heard about the subject matter and even just thought it would be kind of an interesting thing to do to meet some very unusual people on the local level that are having meetings and going and sitting and listening to what they talk about having strange encounters or paranormal events. I mm-hmm. was a child that kind of like on occasion, you know, at least as a teenager, I'd watch In Search Of, you know, all of these great programs that brought up these questions that were great mysteries and, and, um, uh, when I started going to these groups and meeting people, I started recognizing that um, some of them had um, encounters with um, with creatures that seemed to answer 
somewhat of a, an, a, a, a the signature of a, a reptilian. Now I know that I'm, I'm I'm not trying to jump ahead here, but I'm mm-hmm. giving you a base of how I got involved. No problem. I'm very interested. Really yeah, in how how you even yeah, really found out about all this, yeah. kind of, you know? Yeah, it was really the reptilian thing that first got me pulled into it because as soon as I started hearing one or two people at a meeting talk about not meeting, encountering something that looked like the small grays, but something quite different. As I um, did some traveling, I started meeting other groups and hearing one or two individuals talk about it. Now, this was in its infancy. This was when nobody at all was talking about it. Yeah. And I knew that hearing these different people living in different places, they couldn't have been communicating with each other. There was no Internet quite yet. There wasn't that expansive communication where everybody was in touch with each other like it is today. And when you started hearing similar stories happen from one individual to another or the descriptions of what they were reporting, saying that they had contact with, it drove me to to be more and more curious. I was one of those children that were very curious. I, I, if something was, I had to get to the bottom of it. You know, it was a driving <laughs> thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if it drove me crazy, I just had to figure it out. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, so you bit off quite a mystery here, then. <laughs> well, I bit off quite a mystery, absolutely. And when I first started thinking about what was going on, of course, my natural reaction was that I'm meeting very, okay, most of the people in the UFO community are are, are very nice people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them meet at conventions and, and expos because this is their reunion with friends that they've had over many years. Exactly, yeah. And they get to meet once a year. There's a lot of socializing. There's a lot of fun to be had. But at the same time, because there are people who do not have social lives, there are a lot of people that are misreporting incidents so they can create social lives for themselves and fit into the UFO community. And I, I know that those people were out there, and I was being compassionate to them and not – dismissing their stories altogether, but understanding that these individuals are products of that part of our, our social psychology. Right, right. But when the, you hear those one or two stories that there's that element of truth to it that you start start verifying through other sources, and then if if something happens to you personally, it puts you over the top to where you suddenly become subjective. But from an object point of view, you're trying to filter these people out. And when you do actually start looking deeper into it, you realize that, okay, that one or two individuals that are seeing something here, there's got to be something more to it. And that question in itself, when it was having to do with the reptilian signature, it started putting me more or less on a um, vision quest without the drugs um, <laughs> to to figure out, and I'm not putting down the vision quest with the drugs. <laughs> I was going to say that's no fun. Together, you know, <laughs> no, absolutely, you know. Um, uh, but the the point being here is that as I stopped reading and actually put myself in a car to go out into the deserts to start tracking things down and put myself into physical action outside my own home, outside of reading about it or hearing about it from other people, phenomenon would start to open up and I would start to recognize different things that people were encountering and on the occasion I would have my own phenomenon occur, like seeing a sighting of the craft or or something like that. And once, once you have that personal incident take place, then it's the thing that no matter how much I try to rationalize what people are going through and trying to strip away the fantasy from the truth, um, 
no matter how you how you get to that point, there, once you have that incident happen to you, it makes you much more open-minded to other individuals who otherwise you would have you you would have otherwise dismissed. Exactly. Yeah. And um, uh, and I was reaching out to people around me in the sciences. Uh, I did a lot of. Uh, walking into like UNLV library back in Las Vegas when I lived there years ago at the beginning and, and instead of trying to ask for, uh, uh, go through the university courses to be trained to think inside a box, I spent untold thousands of hours walking up and down hallways of special collections and, and books all over the university libraries. And when you start doing that and you start putting yourself into action, it's almost like the phenomenon gets very Keelian, like John Keel, yeah. the author of The Mothman Prophecies. You start to take it personally because it's almost like the phenomenon starts revealing itself to you. Interesting. Okay. And, you know, this is a difficult thing for somebody who's well-balanced and takes the, tries to take the scientific approach to their work by being hyper-objective, yet no, not totally dismissive. Right. It throws you for a loop because you got, you know, all this conflicting interest almost. Right. And when you reach out to colleagues, I reached out to colleagues around myself, even, um, I must say, uh, when I started doing the reptilian work, uh, I started doing conferences around the United States in Philadelphia and Kansas City, started doing radio shows, even with uh, Art Bell when it was the Art Bell show. I mean, this mm-hmm. is early radio. Uh, even before him, um, uh, uh, some of the earlier radio shows, um, as the as the information started to grow, and as everybody started hearing about it, of course, it evolved a life of its own to where other individuals would fit my information within the paradigms of how they're trying to sell themselves or their beliefs to the public by incorporating the reptilian stuff into it. Now, sadly, but again, because of normal way that people are, some people had taken that information and intentionally misrepresented it so it, so it fits their the, what they're trying to sell. And if they're trying to sell fear, then they usually try to present the reptilians in all sorts of bad viewpoints, making them out to be demons all the time without thinking about the laws and balance of nature, which means that, you know, there's there's repentance and goodness in everything. So you don't get just everything being the same way. There are some that are not like the others. Exactly. It's like people. And there's good people. There's bad right. people. Right, and and the easy way to understand this for everybody out there to to realize what I'm saying is true is to recognize that the majority of the reptilian humanoids that we are meeting, the physical ones, um, we are having, or even non-physical ones, and I use that those delineations kind of loosely because when they're walking through walls and materializing in front of you, what is going on here? It's hard to figure out what's the non-physical thing and the physical thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, these guys have repeatedly shown themselves. In, in aspects in which they're lacking emotion or being aggressive. And I would like to ask everybody to use a little bit of logic here to think that if another race of beings were being sent to our planet in advance of an invasion or anything like that, or whatever the situation may be, even if they're living underground here on Earth, then we are meeting, having first contact with who do we send to other planets. If we were to send NASA, we'd send somebody from the military along with some scientists. 
and the military would display aggressiveness in situations where they felt it was necessary, and the scientists would be void of all emotions because they'd have to sit there and do autopsies on little creatures from the planet that they just landed on so they can look and see what's going on and to study them. Uh. Yeah. So we're meeting, we're meeting, we would be sending representatives of our own culture that are like that. Now, I would hate to think that our encounters with their scientists or their military types reflect on what their whole society is about because we're meeting people who are specially uh, trained to be non-emotional or aggressive. Right, special. And that's who yeah. they would meet if they, right, that's who we'd meet if we sent somebody to Mars. They'd meet, oh my gosh, that guy's carrying a gun, he seems to be rather aggressive, and this one doesn't care if he's poking with me with needles. <laughs> right, now we can't say that, we can't say that's what the whole other side is all about. Exactly, yeah. I never really, uh, Put put that. I never kind of put those thoughts together, but you're absolutely right. I never uh, right. Never there are some, that. There is, that's that's why as as wonderful as ufology is, it's rife with a lot of trash. Now it doesn't mean that the subject is wrong or anything like that. It means it takes time if somebody wants to spend it to sit there and filter through it. And really, your filters are going to come down to what are what tolerances do you have in the shift of your own vision of reality? Exactly. Because every time you talk to somebody and I, Everybody out there that's listening to me recognizes this. When you're talking to somebody about the subject matter, you're enthused about it, but at a certain point, that person just shuts down their listening. They don't want to hear anymore because your enthusiasm and willingness to share and enlighten that person gives them so much information that they go into an information overload and they shut it down. They'll turn around distracted. Their eyes will dart away from you. Their minds will start to wonder while you're talking to them. And it's because everybody out there in society is like that. So it's really coming down to their level of what they can accept into their paradigm. That's where their tolerances are. The rest of everybody else, like if there was some big big dimensional shift and such like that where we saw a whole bunch of bright colors and we'd never seen before or we'd hear sounds and music or notes of musical scale we'd never heard before but were appealing, that kind of a shift, the easiest persons to adapt to such a thing are people with um, the well, first of all, if taken hallucinogens, or other individuals in the arts where that wouldn't sh- that wouldn't phase them as much. The others who are restricted in their in their uh, in their grasp on reality, the ones who grasp onto what we have now, they're the ones that are shattered. So we'd be okay. We'd be okay because yeah. for the most part, we'd be okay. We'd be we have adapted this information. This is what part of the desensitization program has been since I believe that maybe the late 1930s or late 1940s about we have an eventual contact coming up, but we don't want to deny it altogether. We want to keep the conversation going. Exactly. And, but it's because they want us to get desensitized. Now, when you look back along the linear time scale of how these aliens appear to ourselves, it's very unusual that they, first of all, appear as almost etheric, um, and then secondly, they start appearing as the little greys, like, uh, you know, Alistair Crowley's lamb being entities, mm, and yes. the greys with the large eyes and such. And then as time goes, uh, oh, excuse me, before that was the, the, um, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, all aliens are beautiful human phase we went through in the 1950s. Like the contact people from Venus and such like that, the contact phase, right? Yeah. And then we had the small diminutive grays uh, come out. And then after that, we have the reptilians start to emerge. Now, I tried my best when trying to get this information out to expose it as, as, as um, objectively as possible. 
um, and to give everybody an honest, uh, you know, rational viewpoint of what was happening. I, I, and then all of a sudden, even though I was letting everybody know that, you know, 70%, if not 70 to 73% of these contacts with reptilian humanoid beings have been beneficial or at least neutral in the emotional after effects of their, of their contactees, even though the majority of them have been nice or neutral, according to the statistics, once the information started getting out, certain individuals went out there to promote them as nothing more than just the demon evil dragon that's supposed to come back at the end times. And they tried to sell that in their wares. Interesting. All right. And, so, thought, and, and so by, by doing that, of course, the, the mainstream out there is hearing this thing about how evil they are. But at this end, but at this point, the vision and the perception is changing and people are burning out of that because people recognize that when you cast such a negative light on something like that, it only draws your own mental and emotional state into a deep, dark abyss. And it can have violent and adverse reactions on your own psychology. But if you take and embrace that, that, that um, aspect of the fact that, hey, if there are reptilian aliens here, Maybe there's some good reptilian aliens. Maybe the ones that are coming back are the good ones, and then the ones that have been here have turned out bad for some reason. Maybe our radiation did something, or our, our own corrupt leaders have been in association with them and gotten to a bad union. But whatever it might be, it's better actually psychologically to embrace that aspect of it because there's so much a part of our own human brain that is, is controlled by the subconscious mind, the reptilian part of your own brain that we evolved from early reptiles that controls your heart function, your respiration, everything like that. All your vital functions that you don't have to think about are being controlled by that part of your brain. Well, if that part of that brain is, relates to a reptile, why would you want to demonize a subject matter and be afraid of it? Because it puts you out of psychological balance with yourself. Huh. But if you sit there and recognize that not only is there, there these beings are out there, but there is also an, a reptilian part of ourselves, if we embrace that, that's where I believe that we can gain our power. It wasn't until the birth of, of controlled Christianity through the Roman Catholic Church that they started um, vilifying the serpent image to the degree at which we recognize it is today. Remember, for 800 years, the Jews prayed to the image of a snake and called it God before the time of Hezekiah when he came through and said, oh, no, destroy all those idols. Yet this time happened after the time of Moses. So this whole thing about a forbidden image, what was going on here? The one thing about it is that when you had this image put out there that is empowering to you psychology, your own psychology, by them vilifying it, they've made everybody feel guilty and to turn around about something that's a deeper part of their own soul. Wow. And you... they, 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 they give power to that demon id monster that lives within you psychologically. So people who are looking into this subject matter, being drawn into this fear, have very adverse reactions. There's actually one woman, um, uh, I think Lynn Henning, uh, had, um, uh, that, um, attended a conference, and they were vilifying the reptilians, as they usually do, as a main part of their focus at this at this workshop. 
And um, it was rather a long workshop. And after coming back um, to their lover um, that sh they were having an affair with um, back in Arizona, they ended up uh, murdering their lover's wife because it, they were convinced this person was an evil reptilian queen. What? Because they were so, yes, absolutely. Wow, I've never heard that story. This, yes, absolutely. It was a very famous court case. They had it on court TV, as a matter of fact, because they called it the reptilian queen murders or something like that. Oh, my God. And the, the, the individual returned back home. They never found the body, and this, this woman um, had turned around and said, that um, I believe her name was Linda Henning, if I'm not mistaken. I'm, my recall now. It's like, <laughs> um, <all> right. <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, when they returned, when the person was being held um, in, in in jail, they had admitted that they had eaten the body because that's what the reptilians. This is what they had been convinced the reptilians, queens, and that were having done. And so, you know. When when you take people and introduce them to a very subject scary subject matter that evokes something deep within them psychologically because of our own our, our own inherited um, ancestral evolution, then um, you can do nothing but damage. What happened was is that in earlier days before organized religion, people had more psychological power because the majority of religions around the world embraced the snake as the image of God. They did this because the earlier cultures were taking drugs and the drugs were releasing visions within their own minds that embraced that snake. <laughs> this is this is this is around the world. I remember I was in communication with Terence McKenna before he passed away and I said, Terence, let me ask you, what about these reptilian beings? And you know, have you had your own encounter? He says, John, I know about your work and everything. He says, But I can tell you one thing. He said the most vivid and real thing that ever occurred to my life included it was of a reptilian human being. And he says, I don't know if it came from inside my imagination or if it was real standing in front of me. But either way, it's okay. Wow. You've, you've laid a lot on me here in the, <laughs> just to start out. Let's, let's circle back a little bit here and give people a thumbnail on the terrestrial reptoid hypothesis, so we so they're all caught up on on this uh, okay, as we so, delve further into it. Right. So we come up. We we have this thing about. I heard about these reptilian humanoids. How do they fit into the picture? What's going on here? Right. right. Coming from off planet or what? Okay. Um, there was a scientist, a paleontologist by the name of Dale Russell. Dale Russell did work for NASA, and he was trying to project what extraterrestrial life may look like. What he did was he came up with a model called um, di a dinosauroid. And a dinosauroid was based on what he said the most advanced dinosaur like 65 million years ago that existed. Uh, it was called Truodon. And this Truodon dinosaur was upright on two legs, had a tail, had little, you know, forearms and hands, and its head was upright. Now they said one thing about this particular dinosaur is that it had a larger brain than most of the others, as well as the fact that the eyes were coming from the side of its head more towards the, together towards over its nose, so it allowed it binocular vision, would allow it to like 3D vision to make it a better hunter. Yeah. It had an opposable type of a thumb that it could use for, for a basic grasping. Um, all of these things they looked at and they said, well, what if this dinosaur had not died out? Based on what its bones look like, 
because they had a timeline, they said, what if we projected out what this dinosaur would have looked like if it had been allowed to evolve? And this startling image that this scientist came up with was something that looked reptilian humanoid. In other words, it had upright walking features, just like we stand upright and it had two arms, legs. It had three fingers and an opposable thumb. It had uh, eyes that were almond-shaped and uh, had vertical slit pupils. Uh, there was two slits for a nose. It had a wide lipless type of a mouth that it would use for eating. And they said that based based on these projections, if this dinosaur had been allowed to evolve, this is what it would have looked like. This image of a tall reptilian humanoid about maybe um, five feet tall and, and it had the, uh, no hair, reptilian scales all over its body. It had um, a wide lipless mouth, two slits for its nose, and um, vertical slit pupils in its eyes, three fingers and opposing thumb, was upright. And to me, when I heard the early reports of this from people talking about their contacts, and I put that together with Mr. Russell said, then I said, well, then there's an evolutionary possibility that a, a branch of the dinosaurs may have actually survived somehow and evolved. Right. And this theory that I was proposing out there was before scientists said in agreement that a bird, it turns out, were dinosaurs. And, it tur and that somehow they had branched away from the dinosaurs and became what we know now as birds. Now, Forgive me if I'm wrong. We keep thinking of the dinosaurs and these early reptiles as reptilian, cold-blooded, but at the same time, we're talking about a reptilian that became a mammal because a bird's a mammal. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. now we know now, we know now that there are variations between cold and warm-bloodedness that to exist beforehand through the linear timeline. So when we're talking about these beings... Uh, potentially splitting off from the dinosaurs or earlier reptiles in a small pocket population going underground where now they're protected from solar bombardment, damaging rays, cosmic rays and such like that or weather extremes. It's the nature of a snake anyway to crawl under a rock. What if they had crawled under a rock, say, in, an, in Antarctica? You know, because they, in Antarctica they were perhaps more adapted to dark environments because they lived where it was four or five months of total darkness and sub-freezing temperatures, but they had dinosaurs down there. So, what, But we're told that the cold killed off the dinosaurs, so maybe some of them actually retreated down underground and evolved over time like mammals did because they had less predation, they had less problems to deal with things that otherwise minimize races or reduce population sizes and make it a struggle for humans to reach what we have today, they could have gone great distances. It took us, what, this long to become what we are. Right. So if something happened 65 million years ago, who are we to say in that timeline it didn't happen to something else? Right, and they'd have a massive head start on us. Right. And and when you think about in, in, in that, then that means, okay, if... There was a possibility that this is where we get the root of discussion, talking about the fact that 
for example, the Arabs talk about the jinn and man. Jinn and man are two different beings that live on this planet. What we call the jinn are the genie. Uh-huh. Like, I dream of genie. Yeah. You know, so they talk about the jinn or the genie as being a separate type of race living on the planet that lives beside man. But it's non-corporeal. It can sometimes slip in, in and out of physical reality. But yet we both occupy the same planet. So you're saying the jinn might be like a depiction of these reptilian creatures? Reptilian creatures. And, and if something is living underground, the, here's the old thing about the old um, uh, belief, which I think there's still, to disprove it, takes more work than to try and imagine it. But um, the idea of the Earth being hollow, like a geode, having been formed like a geode. Yeah where during the rotation of the planet, the centrifugal forces force the heavier mass towards the outside, creating a crust so the lighter stuff stays on the inside, meaning it has less atomic mass to it as you go towards the center. And that somehow in the center of all of this is perhaps um, some sort of uh, uh, place with the central sun where actual beings live. I mean, whether in, and some people would argue is in physical form. Well, maybe not. Maybe they perceive themselves physically, but it's just not physical. And, you know, you hear about the, the, the guys in ancient Tibet having gone deep into the mountains, you know, and, and when they're coming out of the mountains, some of these guys are seen to glow. And it has been said that some of these uh, great teachers that have come out from the underworld are perhaps glowing only because their atoms and molecules are not fully densified and they're still releasing light from the inside of their cells and their atoms. Interesting. But after a certain time, time they densify and go down. Well, this, this whole thing to do with the looking at what's going on here from a terrestrial hypothesis, I'm not trying to say everybody's wrong, but what I am trying to say is we've been distracted since, since um, 1947. Everybody's been looking off-planet, when really the discussion, should, the question should be to our government, are there any other non-human races that are intelligent that we're having contact with, whether extraterrestrial or terrestrial? Right, right, right. These, these guys are earning themselves a big loophole by always turning the discussion talking about extraterrestrial. Exactly, yeah, yeah. That'd be, <laughs> there you go. Right. A good Philadelphia lawyer would be saying, well, just don't, you don't have to answer that. You can deny it. <laughs> Now, you know? now, in this framework of the terrestrial reptoid hypothesis, uh, where do the, the gray aliens fit into all this, if, if at all? Well, it, from, what, from what I can put together through legend, because yeah. that's all we really have. I yeah, don't yeah, know. All, people yeah. have stories about where they say they've been told they come from, and we don't know if they're being lied to or not. So it's all up in the air. But um, it, it appears as if, though, um, maybe... The uh, greys are, there's very few of them that have autonomous thinking capabilities. The others have been cloned out and rented out to the reptoids. And the ones that are here um, are, that were, that cloned themselves out are actually originally from off planet. And that there are rogue groups coming down to the planet on occasion, be they grey or anyhow else, um, that want to maybe strip technologies from the surface. We know that whatever's going on here, we know there's one more than one race involved, and they do seem to be in one big conspiracy to keep their presence away from man. This is not a U.S. government secret. 
This is everybody's secret against us. So there must be some sort of agreement going on that say you can't reveal yourselves. Yeah. I believe that's what the men in black are. And and that's an agreed upon force, whether physical, non-physical, alien or whatnot. They just don't want everybody to get outside the big surrealistic circuits we've got going for ourselves because we represent a massive engine. And that's the way the elitists look at us. They don't look at us like thinkers. They don't care what we think. Right. It's like we're a resource and there's all these different races, that, uh, all these different species of, of creatures that are sort of using us for a variety of right. different reasons. And, and sort right. of, you're saying it's sort of agreed upon by all of them. It's like, I, I presume maybe it is written somewhere, but for, for lack of a better term, like an unwritten rule that you, you don't, you know, you don't ruin the, right. the, the big secret. Well, we can, right, we can see they're in agreement. And right. there are on occasions things that happen in which are covered up. And there might be things that happened that weren't supposed to happen, but some rebel group went ahead and did it anyway. I'd also like to uh, uh, posture the the fact that, um, uh, remember, scientists just recently did a mass analysis on how many species of creatures or animal plant there are on our planet, animal species, and that we've cataloged approximately about 1.7 million, but that only represents about 15% of the anticipated life out there on our planet with which we share this planet that we've never had contact with. Wow. So as, as much as these scientists want to assure you that they know exactly what's going on and what could or not, could not be possible, um, we're only, we're, 85% of the great mystery is still hidden from us. Hmm. And, um, and to, to postulate the, uh, the question of a terrestrial hypothesis of reptilian human beings, reptoids, reptilian humanoid, that's really the word for it. Reptilians is too, it's too undefined. Yeah. An alligator is a reptilian, so you can't say it's a sh- intelligent reptilian. Is it reptilian slash humanoid or dash? So you see, like the rep- reptoid is reptoid, sort of like rep- captures reptoid, the uh, humanoid right. aspect of it. Right. And um, uh, the, the the other thing was is that um, uh, when everybody brings up an argument about that can't possibly be from a craft from outer space, all of these minerals can be found here on Earth. There's nothing unusual about it. Then you can say, well, what if other intelligent beings are living on our planet and they're mining the same minerals that we are? Do right. you think they're going to be using the same minerals on their craft? Exactly, yeah. yeah okay, like, so now course, yeah. when people use it, when then people say that to you and you hear that, you have to, the only defensive argument you have at that point is to bring up that fact because it kills their argument. And see, I've been doing this for 20 years. You get me in front of a camera or something like that, I'm able to bring forth a little bit more logic to put it in a different perspective because they've they've controlled the language we've used. They've tried to get us to go away from flying saucer because it sounds like maybe too much like dinosaur. Interesting. That, right? That's interesting. Extrapolate on that. You think you think that they they've skewed the words flying saucer because it yeah. sounds too much like dinosaur because that would draw attention right. to the, the rep, reptoid theory, I guess you could say? Well, it could, but, you know, they don't really need to do that. Now the reptilian theory has been so brutalized on television and in open 
an open forum because it's been so laughed at because there's been such crazy claims going on that are so outrageous. And but you have a large population base that digs it, just like they like science fiction or a scary movie. They're willing to entertain it. Yeah, well, I, I actually don't want to know what's going on. They want to be entertained by it. I actually had that in the notes. I wanted to ask you what, how, you know, how you feel. You know, you're sort of like the you are. As I said, you're the pioneer of this reptoid theory. I almost almost said reptilian. I have to try and get <laughs> get into the habit of saying reptoid. But you're the man who really pioneered this, popularized it in a big way. How does it feel to be that that it gets so maligned? That must get frustrating. Well, you know, um, pe- people look at um, other authors and they compare the words that I've used in my article carefully with the words the authors have used. And some people have brought up plagiarism. Some people have said, "Don't aren't you mad that people plagiarize work or steal work and present it as their own? And really, to tell you the truth, I don't. Because if if I had been so egotistical to where it was all about me, I would never have put forth the work and distributed it so freely when I had been getting it out in the beginning. Yeah. I can never be accused of trying to make a dollar with this work. Other people have made millions of dollars. Other people have taken my ideas and built millions of dollars worth of uh, books, magazines, and such like that. But for me, the pursuit has been one more of a spiritual pursuit because I feel that I represent everybody out there. I'm going to give them the truth no matter what, even if it hurts. I will be point blank about it. I won't beat around the bush, and I'll put it into words that are clearly understood and can't be misrepresented. And I'm there for the American people. Every time I, they put a camera on me and stuff like that, you, you have to understand some information I put out actually results in, in um, uh, counterintelligence operations having gone, gone into the media. I'll give you an example. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. I'll give you an example of that. You knew what you could tell there that I was. <laughs> well, you said that I was you know, like, people, what is I know right. people would say, "Well, well, that's well, one hell of a claim, Mr. Rhodes." Well, you know, um, for example, when I was on the UFO hunters, mm-hmm. and we, uh, I brought out the photographs that I had of the thermal boring, uh, the thermal nuclear boring machines that melt through concrete and granite like butter. Okay, this is kind of the visual stuff that never gets seen by the public usually. They don't tell you, these TV shows don't tell you the back end of the story like the the uh, the maps, the original RAND documentation and stuff was refused by the U.S. Air Force and the RAND Corporation to be shown on the TV. They don't want to make statements like that. That's part of the show that they should have put in. Yeah. But they didn't tell the public that, right. When, the, when it went out... Uh, Within, I think it was like within two months after it aired, all of a sudden, um, remember when they, when they request, for example, the audience should know this, when in TV shows, when they request imageries to be shown, images to be shown, they have to be like three or four months in advance of being able to use it in the production, and they have to go to the source like, the Rand Corporation and groups like that. Yeah. And because the Rand Corporation is a private think tank owned and operated by the U.S. Air Force, the information or the request goes back to the Pentagon. So when they see that somebody wants to reveal things about tunnel systems and melting through the earth, this can be somewhat of a concern. <laughs> and after, after the show aired, um, it was the first time I was watching TV, and all of a sudden they started talking about an author who was allowed to write a book about Area 51. It was the first time the government had authorized the, the, the cooperation between an author 
and um, scientists that work there to talk about early uh, flight operations out of Area 51. Okay, yeah, I remember that. Now, part, when, yeah. they, when they were interviewing this individual, this individual, uh, when they were being interviewed on CNN, you know, they only get their four or five minutes of fame on CNN. They're happy to have it, but in the discussion in which they were being interviewed, the, the, the person said, oh, and I, I should remind, when she was being rushed along because they were being, getting ready to close out the discussion, her interview, she goes, I, I think I should remind everybody, you know, there's been this discussion of like underground tunnels leading underground, leading from one underground base to another and everything. And that, that's just not true. I mean, I talked to these guys at Area 51 and they said the only tunnels they were in were above ground which doesn't make sense. Right. And and she says, uh, and it's just, you can pretty much relate all of that to a couple of guys in Las Vegas drinking at a bar and just making this up. <laughs> okay, now, this has nothing to do with her book. Her book doesn't talk about it. Yeah. Nothing. Okay. Switch over to Fox Network. Here's Fox Network the next day doing an interview with her. And their lead-in is, we're here to separate some of the science, some of the facts from fiction with Area 51. This is before they have it on the camera. They have the map up in the background and everything. They go, we're here to separate some of the truth and fiction of this. And he says, for example, you know, people talk about the aliens having, you know, or, or there being underground bases and tunnels with each other. And that's all fantasy. And we lead on to other things. We're here to talk to this woman. Again, the topic about the underground facilities being linked by underground trains was tossed aside and easily dismissed, even in the introduction. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with her book. So if you're going to have access and be allowed to have access to scientists, too, because your own ego is going to get you up there in front of the cameras, then it seems kind of odd that so timely the discussion should be on national television to a large audience about the subject matter, and all of a sudden you start seeing this message being pushed out. Yeah, yeah. Because like they, they want to go out of their way to make sure, system. yeah. Absolutely. So when when I go out and I try and enlighten the public and represent their interests out there, which I have done all my life, there's a great deal of sacrifices, um, uh, monetarily, not just being the only one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not to have children because I knew that a child could be used against me. We'll kill your child if you don't shut up. So that was a conscious choice of mine. So there was a great deal of sacrifice. But when I go out there on television to represent the public interest, there's a great deal of work in which I do, which there's a lot of risk to it. And I and I understand that. But at the same time, um, uh, there are some things that need to come out in a more objective and a more um, and a more open-minded manner. And that one thing still leads on to the, that we live not only in a crowded neighborhood with other planets and other dimensions, but we have other beings that have occupied our planet for untold thousands of years, some of which naturally evolved here and others which set, set up shop and never left. Yeah. And, and so this is our, our neighborhood. And... Um, these are the type of things that I believe that we need to expand our questions into and, and start using a language that is more is as equally as equal as the extraterrestrial claim. The language that we use in these talks about UFOs should always contain a, a terrestrial viewpoint or at least a, a label with terrestrial in it as well, because otherwise we're missing at least fifty percent of what's going on on this planet. I've always likened it. I've always likened it, Tim, to like 
the magician that reaches in his pocket and and he pulls something out and he holds it above the crown. He's saying, look at this, I have. And meanwhile, his other hand is reaching in his other pocket, pulling out the next trick. Yeah. This thing about an extraterrestrial threat and everything like that, this is, um, or an extraterrestrial presence out there with dismissing the terrestrial presence is the distraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's That definitely seems the case because, uh, you know, there's this mainstream attitude uh, that, that people have come around on aliens, but they don't ever consider the idea that the aliens are, are, are already here or, have you know, have been here all along. The, the, the terrestrial aspect it doesn't get any consideration, it seems, even as the mainstream adopts more of a positive attitude about extraterrestrials. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. Well, the, the the thing is, is that what happens if we get uh, an, uh, what was presented as extraterrestrial presence coming here, claiming that Earth is their home? Now, would our leaders want us to believe that they were extraterrestrial and had no legitimate right to call this their home world? Because they don't want new leadership to come in and threaten their uh, changing anything because they feel like they're in total control of everything. Yeah. You know, our, has our leadership demonstrated the ability to do the right thing? In the overall look here at the, at the terrestrial reptoid hypothesis, are humans a completely separate species or are we like a, a lot of people have the idea that, you know, the aliens created humans? Is, is that a possibility that humans are actually oh, some kind of creation? I think we're of really high. We're hybridized, yeah, and some more so than others. And, you know, um, I totally believe that because, you know, look, and if they're expecting us to have open contact one day, if you want to look at it from that angle uh, and keep peace, you know, a long time ago when two countries kept peace, they'd marry their children off to each other. Okay, the Queen of England would marry her daughter to the German Chancellor's son or something like that. Yeah. This is how they created peace treaties before each other because now they had a common bloodline. Something that would be considered the unifying factor. Let's not fight because we are all our family, quote unquote. Right. Interesting. Now, I I would expect maybe that to be happening as well where other races want to hybridize us so we could have some future generations that represent a, a the, the best of both species hmm. and also and also perhaps to to survive some sort of a disaster on the surface of the earth maybe the these beings or these people that are the hybrid types the real ones yeah, it's a great fantasy to believe you're one although for some people they wish they never had the experience um you know, these people, a lot of them believe that they, they are the generation to inherit things taking place afterwards. Yeah. In other words, if the aliens thought I was so important to come down and talk to, they say to themselves, then would they let me, as an end result of an experiment or even part of an experiment, would they risk that just being washed down the drain by me dying when they could have helped steer me in some direction or guide me to some area of safety to where now at least I'm still around to interact with? Otherwise... When great disasters happen, it's it affects their experiment too. Right, right, right. <laughs> they know where everybody is. They know everybody's health. They know where their hybrids are. Yeah. You know, so I think we're being hybridized. There might be uh, elves or Mars-based men doing hybridization projects with humans. The reptilians doing hybridization with humans. The greys trying to inject a little bit of their own thing into it. After a certain amount of intelligence, when you've achieved all that technology, all you have is this playground of genetics. 
And then beyond that, what do you have? Spirit. So are the aliens actually beyond genetics now? Are they actually involved in spirit, human spirit and alien spirit, manipulating that? Now you're going down an even deeper rabbit hole. That's that's uh, troubling. This whole thing is very very troubling, John. It's very... uh, Now... Uh, ballpark, how many, you've been looking at this for 20 years, how many sightings have you, have you heard about, uh, encounters with these things? And what, what is a, you know, what are these sightings usually, you know, I can presume you know, you don't run into them at, at the Walmart, so like, what is it, what is happening when people see these creatures? They, I um, presume they're off in the middle uh, of have, nowhere, kind of. We have tens of thousands of reports. We've got probably thousands of really good reports, hundreds of reports that filter down to where you can say the majority of what's going on here, if it's not physically actually happening, is a form of eidetic overlay that people are having in which their own reptilian brain is trying to, 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 um, an eidetic overlay. Let me explain that for people who might not yeah. know. When you're yeah. a child playing with those little toy sets with little people and little cars, some children um, can actually be so engaged into it to where their brain overlays in the overlaying of the visual field actual activity occurring to where that's where the child's imagination and its brain are, are perfectly in playing together and interact, interacting together. And then this is called a dedic overlay. And there, and, um, there are things that can be projected from subconscious mind when you're feeling really sensitive that actually can show you that if you feel a person's evil and you're feeling that evil from them, what your brain will do, it will enhance the reptilian features in that person because that's the thing that we have been entrained to believe is the representation of evil. But also it represents your own subconscious mind in this in the form of a snake in order to open up a communication. Hmm. These are, this is why the, the Aztecs, all of this stuff, the serpent stuff all over the place, um, the Celts with the serpent stuff, the Phoenicians with their dragons and everything, this is with the Egyptians and all their snake stuff, this is with the Africans and all their snake stuff all over Asia, dragons, everything. The world is united by that. So that's such a part of our repeated consciousness, even if you believe in reincarnation, that all of this is evolving into the human brain in forms of symbols, and genetics carry these symbols. Yeah. You know, genetics have, there's this junk DNA they found, I've mentioned this before, they know ways of typing codes into your gene to have it reproduced throughout your blood, so all they need is a drop of your blood and they can see the code. Hmm. Okay, they can read the code. Interesting. So all of that stuff is in there, including imagery and symbols, and you pass it down. And if you come back here time and time again, even in reincarnation, you're inheriting the genetic information from a linear timeline. Hmm. And so that, that that makes it a very powerful thing. This is why uh, the reptilians even speak in geometry. It's not it's best for them sometimes to impart a lot of information, not by communicating gutturally or by clicks or anything, but they've actually been seen to uh, be able to manifest out of them, a geometric shape of plasma being released in which it was interlocking different layers of ro- different rotating symbols 
to where that plasma field came and actually hit the other person to contact the in the head to where they can feel it move through their skin as it was touching them into their head. Oh, there weird. Was a, there was almost a pressure, but not quite. And then immediately after the, the contacts, um, and I'm saying some week or two later because it, it took a while for this individual just to even think about what occurred because it was so unrealistic they didn't even think about it. They put it out of their head. It was so unbelievable. Right. But that person had a burst in interest in laser communications and without the background training went down and took a course in advanced laser optics to see if they could take a test to be part of a course, excuse me. And even though they had no legitimate uh, educational background in it, they passed the test and they were starting to do things in the workshop that were not normal and highly advanced. And it was regarded as too, you got to remember, back in the Cold War days, even in the 60s, when people were doing this, they were thinking it must be a Russian spy with a fake background. Right, it right. doesn't show that he has an education in any of this, but he's doing all this stuff. So when you start doing things like early work with laser optics and it has to do with government work, all of a sudden you're put under the microscope. Yeah. And when the government knows that you have no connection with any other foreign government, then they're going, well, what, where is this coming from? So, you know, the contactees that have been, that have had contact, some of them have, uh, felt like they were manipulated because they were being used as vehicles to do things and they didn't like it. And others, on the other hand, you know, took the, took their studies and their information to bring them to really, uh, empowering points in their lives. Well, now, you brought up an interesting point there. You say you have like thousands of sightings and, and good ones too, uh, What's the level of communication, I guess you could say, between the reptoid and the human during these encounters? Uh, do, do we, do, what kind of information do we know about them via what, what they tell us, if you will? Well, again, separating all the reports that I can say this person is adding into it, adding their own fantasies into right. it versus what's repeated, um, they, they do seem to have a sense of urgency that something's about to happen. Okay, They're, they seem to be having a sense of the time is running out. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, right. And and they 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 have told people that they should become more independent. And so some people walk away from this thinking, oh, for my family? You know, so it, it causes <laughs> yeah. problems with them because they think, oh, they're being, you know, this is being guidance. I should just not like my family. But they don't understand that when you get something as a simplified form of a message like that, it's really a matter of, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean one thing when you think it does. Yeah. So you yeah. got to be real careful in your interpretations of it. But that's the, that's the, that's the anticipation, I think, is a good way to describe what people are sensing afterwards, too. They feel raw. Uh, in other words, they feel that whatever ha happened goes right down their spine, um, almost like, and I think it's not so much a drug being used, I think it's only because th th they might be activating some kundalini energies in individuals, um, because there does seem to be this, this thing that can't be uh, avoided where there, historically there was a connection between reptilian humanoids and human females where women had been saying that they were made love to or had ex ex uh, sexual intercourse with a reptilian humanoid at night. Oh, boy. And um, and this, of course, 
is great radio. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Get a lot of advertising on that, you know. Oh, <laughs> with reptilians, oh, and we've all heard that, you know. So, um, uh, but really, uh, uh, to some degree, a lot of these women that have these contacts, they have issues with sex afterwards to where some of them feel that they need to get into some sort of a, uh, 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 relationships in which they have um, the last say on everything or how would I say this, dominatrix-like. They need to feel like they're in control because they do, a re- they do have a reverse reaction to being totally out of control. Right, 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 yeah. Um, you know what I mean? So yeah, I know what I mean. Overcompensating, mm-hmm. overcompensation. There you go. Um, right, and um, a large part of it is because women are much more uh, sensitized to their kundalini energies that when the, the snake thing comes up in their subconscious mind, then they're more apt to embrace it. And when they embrace it, it generates a kundalini reaction up from the top, bottom of their spine upwards. And they perceive this as having a lower, lower astral intercourse type of situation because they, they uh, equate it with um, a tantric sex type uh, situation occurring. And that um, when they become uh, fully illuminated in an encounter, that's the last thing that they remember. They don't really remember coming fully out of it. In other uh-huh. words, you know, um, he was there, it was occurring, and that was it. Yeah. Um, uh, some of these women have been able, and, and their husbands had difficulty, or boyfriends had difficulty in relationships because the boyfriends and the husbands are thinking that their wives are kind of nuts or something. And <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. Some fantasy life, and they can't identify with it. And other times... I sat there with, like, um, Bill Hamilton talking to his wife, looking at photographs of the tracks in the carpet. What do you mean, tracks in the carpet? Well, what looked like indentations of large footprints with uh, three areas which would look like some sort of clamp toe claw came down. Oh, God. Right. And this Did you take pictures of these? Oh, years ago, yeah. Oh, but I guess. see, there's a lot of there's a lot of research, you know, I share with the public, but there's a great deal I hold back and, and I'll tell you why. It's because when you're when you're a researcher you have to be able to verify sources and such like that. There's uh, methods of information verification and trusting of sources. For example, you, you there's a story you tell everybody that you don't want them to tell anybody. It's the same story but to one person, you say that there was a red car. To the other person, it was a green car. The other person, it was a yellow car. And you mark down in the notebook who you told what color to what car in the story to. And then said, don't tell anybody about it. Then later on, you start reading on the Internet, oh, there's this guy with a yellow car. And then you go, well, I know who who talked about the story. Right, right. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So, there's, so there's information that has to be held back only so I can use it for verification process. Yeah, exactly. And there's also information that I've held back that I believe has saved my life. In other words, some stuff that may be so damaging that I feel like it's the only thing I have up my sleeve to keep me alive. Wow. All right. Uh, now that, you, you're teasing me here because I, <laughs> I don't want you to well, die, uh, but I want to know this information. <laughs> You've well, let me, me in let a catch-22. Right. Let me just say that, you know, look, that uh, most of the people who have had contact with men in black, which I have on more than one occasion, and I'm talking about the non-physical as well as the guys that are the physical guys from the government. Yeah. They, they 
um, uh, you know, they, everything, you, you just don't, you don't go out to try and make a problem. You have to choose your battles. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? And there's researchers out there when they get something so much so that they know that, hey, this could end everything or does it have to be directly related to what I'm doing? I have information that's not directly related to what I'm doing or teaching, but it's so darn damaging that if I brought it out, it would cause ripples. Well, okay, just keep that one tucked away. Maybe these guys would have a sense of respect after a while, knowing that I'm not out there just pushing buttons. Exactly. I don't think yeah. anybody should be doing that. Exactly. So have you been... Tell me a little bit about these men in black encounters, and I was, uh, that, that sort of uh, dovetails onto what I was going to ask you uh, before you mentioned that, which was, that have you been threatened for, for this research? Because it's very controversial stuff. Right. Um, I have never had anybody from the government approach me and say, you have to be quiet. Okay? Mm-hmm. Never. However, <laughs> having said that, I will say that I, I know now I never would point to an exact location of an underground base even if I knew that there was one there. Number one, national security has an interest that is for everybody's sake and it's, and it's needed to be there. So, um, because they, they don't mind if you tell people general vicinities in which underground bases are, but when you start pointing to exact locations or entrances, that can get you in a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah. You know, that type of thing. Things like um, documentation in their own words where maybe the CIA is talking about UFOs, but you don't dare point out the source for it because it would be like, why why didn't you edit that out? It's a clerical error issue. Those type of things. Yeah. And those type of things exist. You know, and another thing, too, is I was thinking about this earlier today. I wish that everybody would get out there and start making that effort to start communicating with the elderly and 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 their elderly care facilities, not just to be there and be friends with them as they get older in life, but also perhaps to give them the ability to perhaps confess some of your involvement in things that went on in life, that, that you don't want to help have them and unburd- unburden themselves right. by sharing with you. I think there's a great deal of secrets that go to the grave every day. It would be nice if people were out there and interacting, saying, so, Grandpa Jones, you were saying that you were flying what airplane in World War II and you saw what? Exactly, yeah, yeah. That's exactly. true. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stories that, that get lost that way. It's unfortunate. Wow, absolutely. But, yeah. And, and what you do is just, you know, focus around areas in which a lot of people in the past, aerospace industries and stuff in the past used to work with, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Answer odds rather than just going down to normal neighborhood where they build cars all their lives. <laughs> it's just a matter of, you know, when you research these things, there's there's so much out there, unbelievably so much out there, and there's just not enough people to research it. So tell me about the men in black encounters. You say you haven't been threatened by the government, oh. but what, what happened with these men in black? Uh, on one occasion... I was actually laying in my bed, my bed at night. My bed was close up, close up against the wall. It was in a condo at the time. The window was to my right, and I had taken the curtains and pulled them down to me and put a little doggy cushion in there so my little Maltese had the opportunity to kind of like be there looking out, be on this side of the window and have his own little cage space because yeah. dogs like that. And one night I hear this growling, and I kind of wake up, and I go, what is it? And I, and I look, and I look out the curtains to see what he's looking at, got his attention. 
And here's an individual in a black suit, nicely dressed with their back to me, kneeling down, doing something to the underneath of my wheel well of my of my driver's side of my car. Oh, Jesus. And I was just kind of looking at him, and I hadn't looked at him, but maybe two, three seconds. And all of a sudden, this guy stands up, and he turns around, and he looks at me, looking at him. And then he didn't have to do more than two steps or three steps towards the back of the car before the time another black a black vehicle showed up. The door popped open as if it was pressurized with a spring or something, okay, because the guy on the inside of it, the other driver, didn't lean over to push a button to open the door. Right. It just popped open. Mm -hmm. And what I could see from the inside of the vehicle, it had a glass cockpit. In other words, this thing looked a little bit more like an airplane than it did a car. Hmm. And the the lights on the dashboard look more neon than they looked like LED or the long LEDs embedded in glass or something. Yeah, you know, and and that and they got in and it shut down. Now, a lot of people say, did did I go out the next day and look under my car? That's what I was just going to ask you. Wow. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and, yes, of course I did that. Yeah. Did I find anything? No, I didn't expect to find anything because these guys are good at their jobs, right? So did I pursue it and tear the car apart? No. Why? Because if they went to that extent, whoever it was to do that, when you do that kind of thing, then they feel like, okay, the guy is harassing us. He knows we're trying to watch him, but he's, make, he's making it a problem. So now they start becoming aggressive. Yeah. Okay, because you're causing them to come out and do it twice. <laughs> said, but, the yeah. thing that, but the thing that really got me in that whole episode was when I sat, laid there in bed and after the event, and I'm thinking to myself, um, wait a second here. How did he know I was watching him? Huh. Because there yeah. was a tree to either side of the window. There was only a narrow field of view in which I could see what was going on, but there was no vehicles, no people, nothing. So how did he know with his back to me that I was watching him? Okay. Then I realized, okay, there's cameras in my home. And at that point, I gave up on all sense of privacy. This was something like 18 years ago, 19 years ago. And at that point, I realized that this this whole thing about UFOs and everything was very real. These people are very serious, you know. And um, So you think there's cameras in your house? Well, at that point, I know. Because I couldn't, I couldn't logicalize anything else. How did this guy know I was looking at him with his back to me, and there were no, nothing else out there? Maybe he's what just like excited. Maybe like stand up and turn around and look. What? Maybe he's like some kind of, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, like with some psi powers. You know, if, if, well, if they're that, well, that sort of happen. advanced. You know, that this that is not like we're dealing with humans. If it's not a human, it could be. You know, he could just know you're I, watching him. Yeah, I, I know, I know, but I, I just, but see, I'm thinking, I'm trying to rationalize things at this point. I'm thinking first physical guys. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not thinking aliens. I'm thinking physical men because I see them there. Right, right, yeah. I mean, it's real and everything. At that point, I realized, okay, this stuff is so nano-sized nano by now, even a camera. God knows you would never find one, even in your own home. You know? Yeah. And the other time that occurred is when I went out with an associate of mine, named Anthony, and he's a guy that I, throughout the early 90s, I kind of took around with me, just for somebody to bring along. He was disabled. 
he had a diabetes problem, but he had nothing better to do. And he just kind of trugged along with me on a lot of my journeys, including into the Grand Canyon and the thing to do the city in the Grand Canyon and all that. And he was met with me with the chiefs. Well, Tony and I, um, were, I had heard from somebody. There are, there are a number of people across the United States that are older than us that have had peripheral information regarding UFOs because they studied it, but they never wanted to go out and talk about it because they felt threatened. But this one individual said, you know, when I was out outside the Grand Canyon Caverns once, and I said, yes, the Grand Canyon Caverns, it's to the south side of the Grand Canyon up near Peach Springs. Um, and it was it's a very famous place, a large underground cavern. She said, yes, when I was there, when I was, remember, about 1819 we were there, and I remember being off the side of the road in some dirt areas just to the east of the caves canyon and I and I saw an, an area in there had a cave that the, the cave looked like it had a light in there like it was glowing it didn't look like a normal light yeah. and so when I started following up on this story out there that was the time in which um before I went out this individual said that they had a phone call from somebody saying that if you don't tell Tony and John that they're not to go out there, they're going to end up underground, and they're going to end up dead. Oh, God. And so I thought, well, I thought my colleague was pulling my leg. You know, I'm thinking, oh, she's just trying to make it more exciting. Yeah. You know, trying to get the guys all excited for a big adventure out there. Oh, we're going to go driving into danger. Oh, boy. But having said that, when we got out there into an area, this is, again, in a pull-off off the side of the road. Mm-hmm. had some trees around it but around the very close by the Grand Canyon Caverns in Arizona, these two, we get there to pull out, and here's this car sitting there just waiting for us. Again, black car, two guys, black uniforms, black suits, impeccably black dress, clean, dirt on the ground. I didn't see any on the tops of their shoes. They couldn't have taken too many footsteps, otherwise enough powdered dirt would have fluffed up on their shoes, and I saw none. And so my friend Tony is with me in the car, and he's holding on to colostomy bag because uh, it had to do with when we were in the Grand Canyon looking for the underground city thing. He went, he had to go into intensive care for three days when we got out because he had went to a diabetic coma down in the canyon. But anyway, oh long story, long story, long adventure. But anyway, um, when we're sitting in the car, <laughs> Tony looks at me. I go, Tony. I said, I guess we better go talk to him. And he goes, I'm not getting out of the car. You did all of this. <laughs> he was scared. He said, you did it all. Said, I'm just along for the ride. I'm not getting out and talking to those guys. You know, he's, he's holding on to his colostomy bag. Okay, you know, I'll go out and talk to him. So I get out, and the one individual never said a word. He just leaned against the car mm-hmm. and paid like he was acting like he was paying no attention, but you know he was. Right. And the other one interacted with me, and he was very polite. He just said, so, Mr. Rhodes. Oh, so he knew your name. He, my, he didn't even. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, I know yeah. he called me by my full name. So he knew my middle name and everything. And he says, so what are you doing out here? I said, well, I'm just going to go do some hiking over here. He goes, hmm. He goes, you know, you could fall down out there and get hurt. I said, well, I, I appreciate your concern. I said, but I'm, 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 we're pretty good at walking around and taking care of ourselves. And then he just got quiet and looked at me like I was supposed to say something else. What am I supposed to say at that point? Right. And then he just turned around and he said, well, you had better be careful. And he turned around and walked away. 
And then I can't say anything more than that. They didn't say, don't go in there, we'll kill you. They didn't say, stay away from here. But it's all implied. You know what they're saying. They don't have to say it. Yeah. So did you go in then? Oh, we spent time in there. All right. Sure. And because if, if nothing else, even if I were scared and didn't want to go in, I'd have to at that point just to save face. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> because you've got a story for the rest of your life, and you don't want it to end like, oh, when we ran like little chickens. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to live in the moment. Exactly. But, um, those guys were definitely humans. Um, if anybody wanted adventure, I'd just... Go. You just start looking at the Grand Canyon caverns and all the limestone around the Grand Canyon and all that open space down in there, and then you recognize, well, what's around the Grand Canyon caverns? I went there with, um, uh, again, the UFO hunters. They brought a they brought a a forensic artist in so he could talk to people about meeting the Men in Black. And they met, the show met me out there at the Grand Canyon Caverns. He said, John, where do you think we should go? I said, the Grand Canyon Caverns, where I met them. So that's where they decided to shoot the whole episode. So they get out there. And um, they have the forensic artist uh, take everybody's description, mine, and I think his name was Johnny Black or somebody else, and uh, one other person, and, and time to get their notes on what these men in black look like and have the artist reproduce them. Yeah. After uh, we got back, after I got back home, um, I received a phone call from the production company saying, Hey, John, did you, did you take the art? <laughs> and I said, what? They said, well, I just got to ask. I just got to ask, man. I said, did you take it? I said, well, did I take what? What are you talking about the art? And he goes, everybody else's picture of the men in black were there, but the, Scottish, the artist's renderings of your description were all missing. And they, they were missing from the studios. Weird. Right. And I said, what? Odd. And he goes, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But he says, I have to ask you if you took him, because, of course, you know, what else is the producer going to say? Maybe John took him. I don't know. Right, exactly. Then yeah. I turn, and then, then I turned around and said, look, why don't you tell everybody what happened? I said, that's part of what the thing is. That's part of the real Men in Black sh stuff that goes on. You should say, we got back, and I, we had all our photos, but now all of a sudden, everyone that John Rhodes described is missing. Right. I said, why don't you tell people that in the show? But see, a lot of these TV shows, they get that, they can get that involved, and yet they'll never talk about it. They'll never bring it up in the programming. Why do you think that is? They, they want well, to keep it simple, they they're afraid, or what? Right. They recognize that they've got a good thing going, and at any minute, somebody could pull the plug on their show. Yeah. So they just tread lightly. They don't want to say it was that involved. I had... Um, the Conspiracy Zone with Kevin Nealon a number of years ago. I was on twice. And um, great interview stuff. We talked about the hollow earth theory and, and the Antarctica and the reptilians. And and um, uh, I remember the show's producer and Kevin, I was talking to them, and they had mentioned to me that um, they said, John, they said, uh, everyone we've talked to, they've talked about aliens, like a great number of them. When they get back home, they have a jury summons in their mailbox. <laughs> and I went, really? And when I got back home, there was a jury summons in my mailbox. Weird. That's odd. Okay. So the producers of these shows know that there's levels of intimidation that are, because it's going to be reported back to them by their guests. Oh, I can't come. I have a jury duty. What about that guest? Oh, I can't come. I have a jury duty. What about that guest? Oh, I can't come. I have a jury duty. And they start going, wait a minute. 
okay, we know somebody is manipulating computers, interstate computers, when it's supposed to be a random draw. <laughs> yeah. If they can do that to the point of doing that with the show guests, they know that somebody's saying, you be careful with who you pick and have on and what you're doing. Right. It's all inferred. Spooky. This is all... I didn't, we're going down roads I didn't expect to go down here. This is very uh, fascinating stuff. Ah, this is a great UFO conversation, man, most of which you never hear. Exactly, exactly. You know, <laughs> there's a whole dimension to the UFO phenomenon that is completely unspoken of, only which is a few things we've glanced upon today. But, see, that's kind of what I do. I'm, out, I'm way outside the box. I had a childhood that didn't allow for a normal individual, and I'm outside that box. Well, it seems like you're happy outside of that box, so you're not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I got I got my center. You know, I'm sitting up alongside the Yosemite National Park, and reptoids have been seen up here, and craft have been seen, and um, it's all exciting. And eventually, we're going to be able to put hands on and find something out there that's going to really, really re- amaze people, and and um, it's just a matter of time. No, what do you mean I'm by that? Yeah. Some kind of breakthrough? Uh, I believe so. I think that, you know, the the thing about global warming and all of this being brought up as pre- previously as issues before to try and urge us into a sense of motion. I think that Kissinger was quoted as saying what provokes people is to, you know, is to have them want to police themselves. All of this type of thing that's occurring right now in society is so up in the air. And with... Um, weather changes and solar phenomenon threatening us, um, then uh, the, everything comes up for grabs. Even different types of intelligence groups who have been at each other's throats or at odds with each other, whether they're with the same nation or against other nations, they're going to just be, all, everything's going to be up for grabs. And um, the, the alien presence on this planet or a threat to the planet Earth would be something that they might need to push us all over the top to go completely global. Yeah. Now, there's, there's a difference between one world order and new world order, and people should focus on that. New world order is the stuff we do not want. One world order means, look, if you're going to have, if you're going to have another alien species or off planets try and say, hey, you know, there's off planets, you can't have all of your different nations fighting to be one voice to represent Earth. Right, right, exactly. Okay, so it's, it's a logical, it's a logical step, but the thing is, is that a lot of people just don't trust the rulers that have been in so far because they seem to have been so, um, unfair in their weights of fairness regarding the economy and money distribution on the planet and, and, and a good living, which really 95% work for the 5%, something's wrong with that ratio. <laughs> Absolutely, um, yeah. Some people just are at this point hoping that something it's going to take something greater to turn things around on our planet than the powers to be on our planet. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's you know, yeah. I think that's the 2012 thing. I mean, they're hoping that either God will come back, a supreme conscious being, or aliens will land because that's what it's going to take in order to try and straighten things out because it's been it's so out of control and there's no chance of free will in many aspects of things anymore. Then what where can we go except hope that happens? But after 2012, people keep thinking of that as the date, and it's not. That's a midline date. It's the middle of a window period that actually, if you combine Mayan and Christian philosophies together, religions, you'd say, well, it was three and a half years ago it started. There might be another three and a half years on the other side of this date. Yeah. 
But there's going to be a lot of people on the air trying to say, nothing happened in 2012. You people are all crazy. All of you doomsday people. They'll, and it's going to be really a battering of spirit when that happens, because people will feel like if no god or alien came down, what hope is there to turn things around? There's still those people out there that think, you know, Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney are actually lizards <laughs> who, I mean, literally, there's people that think they're lizards from outer space. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Who eat human flesh. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Enough is enough! I have had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane! Everybody strap in! You talk about the magician's trick. This 2012 thing's kind of a, a trick on the on the paranormal community because we're going to be looking, right. we're going to get laughed at by everybody. <laughs> well, and it is, and, and it's going to be used for that by the people who would otherwise control reality and keep you within confined reality. They need that to demonstrate it, but it's going to reach back at them because with the sun becoming, if the sun goes into a, a solar acquiescence, which I believe, which is a mini ice age period. After it releases a huge amount of solar bursts, it's going to be like a well-fed man after Thanksgiving. There's going to be a few big burps, and that's going to be it. Yeah. And he's going to go quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I think the sun's going to go quiet like it did in the 1700s and create the Maunder minimum, which is means less solar pressure from the sun, means the compressed side of our atmosphere facing the sun expands. And when it expands and it's not as compressed, the refraction of particles in our atmosphere is different. And hmm. there's different types of solar radiations that are blocked, being bl blown around us because we're protected by a compressed field will start entering the atmosphere. And when that happens, eventually DNA itself will start to be affected because one of the things like UVB, um, which is there's ultraviolet light, but the B light, UVB, that you hear about, yeah. the stuff that gives you sunburns, um, when you know, prolonged exposure to that, and under certain circumstances, it can actually move through your body, and like wind blowing along a pussy willow, it will blow the tips of your DNA right off your physical body. It obliterates them. Oh, God. That, and that means that your body will eventually, if this happens with enough of a power, it will actually go, your DNA will go into repair mode and still, instead of reproduction mode. Hmm. It will overcompensate, and it won't come out of, rep out of um, rep uh, repair mode unless an equal wave of energy comes through of the equal strength in the visible light field. Then it reverses it. So, 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 what are you saying here? That that. that, that so, well, what we're talking about was we're talking about some sort of potential cosmic rays coming down here and blowing the junk DNA and all that stuff off the tips of our of our DNA. And what happens is this starts to have pronounced effects on human consciousness. Interesting. Because, because actually, um, um, if you look back on it, uh, there's an earth change. There is definitely an earth change UFO relationship because back in the 1300s, when the Black Death crossed over out of China, it was at a time when the Chinese recorded earthquakes occurring for a period of 10 days without stopping. Now, the Chinese are very articulate with their record-keeping because they believe that the actions of the earth reflect the happiness of God upon society. So they have these great accurate records. But one thing that can't be denied by historians is the fact that during this time when almost half, one out of every two people died in Europe uh, because of the Black Plague, um, 
there was phenomenon taking place that was highly unusual, um, including the fact that there were UFOs sighted over Avignon Palace, which was the Pope's papacy at the time because there was the war in the Italian states that had displaced the papacy over to France. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there were big balls of light hanging over Paris in which people saw it. Sometimes these balls of light hang, hung over like Avignon Palace for a period of hours. And then out the outside end of this great catastrophic time in human history in which everybody died, they said that there were great earthquakes and stuff that actually separated Greenland from the other areas. So there were tribes that they believe were cut off that they couldn't reach anymore. The Earth was in such convolution at that time, but on the outcome of it, give 10 or 20 years, uh, what happened is that human beings encountered a renaissance right. in which there was a birth of math, in which actually uh, dull pastel tones or dull, dark, earthy tones in artwork were reproduced with more vibrant tones. You'd have to say, why didn't they use vibrant colors before? Was it forbidden or anything, or could they not perceive those colors before? Hmm. Interesting. What about the music? Okay, right? Yeah. So there are things that can happen that the Earth releases energy or the solar, the sun releases energy or there's cosmic rays that come down to create a hyper-accelerated evolution. And sometimes that, is in, in evolutionary terms, is called a punctuated equilibrium, meaning that evolution happens at a certain kind of predictable rate, and all of a sudden something mysterious happens, and it takes this big leap forward. Yeah. I believe that we're about to take this big leap forward. It's the 52,000-year leap. Nice. It's the Mayan calendar, you know? Yeah. The big cycle. But if you're not in the right thinking, and you're not sitting there relaxed, if you're under stress and you're worried about things and all of that other stuff, this only comes along once in millions, um, thousands of lifetimes, an opportunity yeah. at this point. 52,000 years, how many lifetimes is that? You've got to be <laughs> sitting on that rock or sitting in your chair, and you've got to convince yourself you're the happiest that you've ever been on that day, even if you just have to branch away from anybody else. Just convince yourselves. Forget your problems that you have for a moment. Just say to yourself, I am the happiest, and I am the result of all my life and all my all my incarnations. All of that, to be here, present, here, and now. Well, how do you know when the day is? When the day is? Yeah, you say... December 21st, 2012. Oh, 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 so you're saying definitely that day. Definitely that day. Oh, okay, all right. Definitely that day, because if you think about it, um, with all the Mayans that have had, what, 2,000 years to maybe come back and reincarnate in their local communities or whatnot, those people died and went on to the other dimension, and they had this story of 2012 in their heads. When there's a story going on of 2012 in your head for so many generations, it becomes like the symbol embedded in, in the DNA. It becomes this thing that's part of you. Well, if all of us, even in the other dimension, wanted to make our dimension more like theirs, in other words, bring people up, make things more fair, kind of distribute, change things a little bit, then that would mean that even on the other side, there had to be some sort of a focus date for some sort of event. And and no matter what, it would be almost impossible, I can imagine, for any human in, uh, black ops groups or aliens or whatnot to look at this date highly anticipated and not try and pull some rabbit out of the hat. Hmm. It would be, wouldn't that be tempting? Absolutely. Knowing the humans are expecting something on that day. I mean, all the men in black have got to be standing there, arms linked, arm chain like a human chain, trying to hold back the alien races from saying, that's right, it's beautiful, we're here. <laughs> 
So what do you, so we're in a quandary, I guess, because this interview will air, uh, you know, in 2013. So do you, I, I hate to, I don't want to put you on the spot here, because I don't like this sort of predictory, uh, you know, to get in, into prognostication. But what, what, mm-hmm. what do you advise? Just, just be, be in, within yourself on the 21st, be happy. Well, this is more, I, would, I guess, I for me personally, because people are going to miss. <laughs> they're they're going to hear this yeah. in 2013, so that it's too late for them to, no, to well, get yeah, happy. Like, so. whether, it's 20, whether it's December 21st, 2012, or whether it's any other date of your choosing, yeah, you have to sit there at some point in time. And I'm saying, what if you sit there at some point in time in which millions of other people focused on? Exactly. At 11, 11 a.m. Yeah. or something. At 11, right. 11 a.m., wherever you are. Let the numbers work for you. Just sit there. Because you know what? Your consciousness is not separate from the universe. It's connected to it. Right. You know, and and I would, again, embrace people just to look inside themselves and feel that little part of their dragon self. There's that beautiful how to train your dragon, that dragon part of themselves while they're sitting there and bring that up. Because there's spiritual momentum. That's a great time for a leap. Now, I'm not saying that that anything's going to take place because, like I've said, I believe December 21st, 2012 is a, is a window period. It's the center of a window period. Hmm. Yeah. So let's just see what happens on the back end. And when these people try to convince us that we're all wrong, it's only because they controlled the press saying it was going to happen at, on that day. Not all of us have been saying something's going to happen on that day, but they'd rather pin it down to a date so they can say, look, you're all wrong. Exactly, yeah. And they will do that because they'll get that last final smirk. Now, do you Even think the reporters. you said that to, to circle back around to the reptilians? Now, you say that they're they're under the impression that they're that they're acting with urgency. What do you think that they know that they does that connect to this? No, I mean that's the thing is they're not saying what's going to happen, but they're they're anticipating something and they know there's a sense of urgency to it. And one of the things is become independent. Yeah. And I think that really means is learn to get away from electrical usage or, you know, store up your food supplies or whatever you can. I mean, my philosophy has always been if we don't have the intelligence and the government does, yet they spend a whole bunch of our money preparing for something just absolutely awful, don't you think we should too? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's... that's <laughs> really, that's what it comes down to, right? They tell us we're stupid for believing that, but they call themselves intelligence, and that's exactly what they do. Right, they're all prepared to 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 survive any sort of cataclysm. So. Oh yeah, well, I'm sure by now we probably have underground cities that are at least forty or fifty years old, with maybe at least one or two generations of people or children living in them. These guys with black ops contracts who take the five or ten year plan have to sign up for it and everything like that. You can't deny them the opportunity of ever coming up and having kids. I think at some point they get told if you just live down underground with all these advanced technologies, you have the best TV, 3D this, you know, whatever you want, yeah. you know, um, then you can stay down here. You can marry down here. You can go on the life plan, meaning you stay down here and you work our secret missions on the surface and your kids work in the underground mall. They have the shops and they work the movie theater and everything like that. It's just a duplication of what's on the surface. Bizarre. Yeah, because, you know, the generals can't just suddenly go down and start wiping, doing the dishes. You think they're going to wait and make sure the dishwasher gets through the door before they shut the bolt's door down? <laughs> yeah. They want, yeah. They want a free-flowing society already going like underground malls, like Caesar's Palace-sized type operations with big apartment condominiums spread off into the rock in all directions and everything. 
to where nobody cares about it. That's their way of life. They wouldn't miss the surface of the earth if that's all they knew after one or two generations. And that kind of thing can easily be done. General Altunin of the Soviet um, uh, Supreme, uh, what was it, um, uh, Civil Defense Chief over there in the, in the Soviet Union a number of years ago, uh, there was a book written about World War III in which um, it was um, Edward Zuckerman, the day after World War III, in which General Altunin is actually in there. And he, he states, I'll read this to you, he was being interviewed, Civil Defense Chief, he was being interviewed um, in 78, he wrote an article, and he said the, the U.S. lag in civil defense has emerged in order to extort additional operations, appropriations from Congress to dupe the taxpayer and to take new stops to strengthen civil defense, which has been a long ago transformed in the United States into a state system, which assuming ever greater fundamental strategic importance, here's the important thing, he said, modern underground federal control centers which provide protection from nuclear, nuclear weapons have been established, construction of communities, he's talking about the U.S., and warning centers for all local government agencies is underway on a broad scale. Now, this is 78. He made this statement. He says, about 232,000 protective structures with capacity over 200 million people were recorded back in 1975 in the United States. Hmm. Now, he's saying there's enough underground space for 200 million Americans underground right now. That was in 1975. So when they try to convince you underground bases only have like maybe a contingency of maybe 800 or 1,000 people, yeah. you've got to rethink that. Interesting. Okay. But you think that presumably, I wonder how many people are down there if that's... Well, again, on. you know, you if you, have the, if you have the children dating each other and they're having children at some point, um, who knows? You know, I'm sure that they expand ladder, laterally and up and down as far as the space that they need. But, you see, being America being what it is, especially if it's conflict with um, the Soviet Union in the heights of the Cold War, as well as an introduction of potentially an off-planet threat, you can imagine that years ago they had thought that something like that could happen. But the best way to survive is to create not only a duplicate shadow government, but also a duplicate shadow citizenry. Wow. You wonder if these, I guess they're kind of brainwashed. I'm just running with this this uh, supposition, but you you know, I guess they I guess they kind of must be brainwashed in a way. They they don't want to leave, right? Because we don't hear them from anyone ever that I know of that, that like escape these situations, right? I mean, even even the Amish have people that leave the Amish. It's like no one seems to be leaving these this thing. Um. Well, we don't exactly know because hey, think about it. Your family lives down there, and you live down there. That you don't want a part of this, and you're going to go up and now. They make it so enticing for you because it's actually cheaper for them to give you pay raise and to give you more modern products to work with and make your life nicer than it is to pay for somebody on the surface to make sure you and your wife and the children keep their mouth shut. Right, right. So it's better to be and down because there. Because they can't, they can't trust children to keep a secret, but they don't want to shoot them or hurt them. They just do their best to keep the families underground. Yeah. And the majority of people that are swept up into these programs are usually individuals in the military armed, armed military forces that during their signing up in paperwork, they wrote down that they are they have no living relatives. If they write down they have no living relatives, usually those guys are filtered out because they recognize they would be a better security than anybody else because if they had to take them into a secret program, there would be nobody else that they had to explain to about where they disappeared to. Right, right, right. 
Interesting. So, yeah, the underworld of orphans, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you have nobody, but you have us down underground. You know, it's like a boy and his dog. Yeah, it's 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 bizarre. It's really uh, it's hard to wrap your mind around a little bit. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's scary too because you they probably look down on us surface dwellers because <laughs> they they're they're poised to survive whatever what comes our way. We're we're sort of like uh, sitting ducks. Fodder. <laughs> exactly. We're cannon fodder. <laughs> That's right. We are the protective shield. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's right. <laughs> the intergalactic neighborhood is using surface humanity as protective shield saying don't shoot at us. Oh my god. So, I know beyond uh, the reptilian stuff and also your research into Grand Canyon uh, caves and caverns, you looked at this cattle mutilation mystery. So, tell me, tell me what you've uncovered with that. Um, it's, uh, it's, an, it's not so easy to dismiss because the the FBI, when they were instructed by um, Senator, I think it was Senator Harrison Schmidt of New Mexico to do an investigation because he called for an investigation a number of years ago in the 70s into the cattle mutilation uh, issues, the FBI came away from its exhaustive examination not saying that it wasn't happening. They just said it's out of their jurisdiction. <laughs> so they didn't dismiss it. They just said it's outside their jurisdiction, and they dropped it. Yeah. And... um I've been to multiple cattle mutilation sites. I also assist law enforcement agencies, rural sheriff's departments with cattle mutilation issues. They know me well enough by now where they pick up a phone and call me. And um, these mutilations occur all over the United States. Um, usually um, uh, they're pointing to issues of environmentalism. And the uh, cows are being left behind. Uh, they've been dis- they've, even the FBI said it's not cults. They know now, uh, even p- people who study cults will say that, you know, the skinning of animals is not a practice with known human cult activity or of any kind. So who do you think's behind and, it? Um, well, as far as the cows and stuff. Uh, well, I think what we might be encountering here is a rogue group of human or non-human scientists that are taking samples of animals that are at the head of our food stock to see if pathogens and other types of things have entered their DNA and their system, how that might threaten human beings. Yeah. And because of um, I've gotten uh, I've uh, uh, the issue is of such a sensitive. I'm trying to be careful how to say this. Yeah. Such a sensitive nature because it has to do with the food chain. I was in personal commun- communications with. Um, the doctor that was with Oprah on the Oprah Winfrey show when he said he wouldn't eat beef anymore. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Big and that caused a big stir. And, you know, he said to me, John, even though we won our court case, Oprah and I won our court case after all these years, the Bush administration immediately went out and said, if you say anything that is, makes people feel insecure about their food chain, you will be held accountable as a terrorist. Oh, my God. And he said, so they, they put this law into effect after he won this court case because they don't want people out there making inaccurate conversations that's going to affect a billion dollar industry or a $10 billion industry, whatever it is. Yeah. And um, he said, so just be careful what you tell people. So all I can tell them is without telling them any one food or another is that it does have to do with our environment. It has to do with the way that we put 
fecal matter in with water, and we let farmers spray it up in the air with their hoses so it gets carried downwind and deposited on the crops. They say it's for healthy crops, but when it gets in the water and the cows drink it, what's that doing to them? Right. Okay, so, and these are pathogens. There's, uh, they, you know, they, they take all this stuff. And, and one of the things I notice is that in my involvement, like up in Montana with, um, in the John Peterson case where he had a mutilated cow, like I was working alongside Sheriff Kuka up there and, and, um, uh, he, the interesting thing was we were out sitting there looking at this cow and, and they're like, you know, the interesting thing isn't this cow, it's the fact that you look at this other cow over here about half a mile away that dropped dead last week and then compare them. You go look at the cow. The cow that you're looking at that was mutilated is now like two and a half months old. It's in perfect preserved, preserved condition. You go off half a mile away and look at a cow that died last week, and it was stripped to the bones. Yeah. By predators. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The predators stripped it to the bone. And they said this happened after like four days of it sitting out here. But they said, look at that cow. And it was sitting there. And even they said the coyotes were walking around it, walking around it, wouldn't go near it. I believe what's happening is they're using certain pheromones yeah. that keep the animals at bay because they want to preserve the condition of the carcass, not only show you show us it's unusual, but that we need to study what they're studying. And when you look at all the parts removed from the cows, you recognize it has to do with veterinarian uh, pathology. In other words, studying how pathogens enter the body and what's going on with the body, with the cows, with the pathogens. Yeah. Now, a number, at the same time I was doing all these studies, I part of part of great advice to researchers out there is when you're studying things that take place, UFO sightings or, or cattle mutilations or abductions and stuff. You generally put a plot on a map, and then you maybe find out where another UFO was seen, and you put another plot on a map. What you need to do is start taking these local occurrences and start drawing lines through them. Yeah. To where you you draw a line, not from dot to dot, but extend the lines out way beyond that. And I was doing that with where the cows were being placed in the field. And um, I always felt that maybe if they're trying to get someone's attention and they're doing these things to preserve, maybe they are watching the individuals who are studying it, hoping that some human gets it to pass the message along, whatever they're trying to tell us. And um, the next year, I noticed that that now it had reached a point at which the phenomenon had gotten really Keelian because they placed the bodies of two young calves in a, in a certain alignment because my suspicion started to be that there were, because of the fecal matter in the water being spread up into the air being in the creek, then it might have something to do with fecal contamination from a nearby pig farm. Yeah. And what happens was the next year there were two more calves mutilated, and when you line the bodies up, one of them, when you looked at one, stood where the body was found and looked directly to near where the nearest nuclear silo was because they're all peppering that whole area up there, as you would normally do because you think, okay, it might be related to the UFO silo, I mean the, the missile silo, so you start drawing a line out. Right. Well, I'm standing with this cow. When you drew a line out to the missile silo, when the line is extended, it's pointing to the pig farm that I suspected. Not huh. only pointing to the pig farm about two miles away, it's pointing to the water tower. Ah. Okay. Interesting. See? Yes, very interesting. It's like, okay, we know they have such precision when doing crop circles. It, it astounds me that they were able to position these bodies so you knew, they knew I would go, oh, there's the missile silo. I'll just draw a line. Oh, isn't that strange? You continue that same line out directly through the missile silo and it points to the pig farm way down there. 
<laughs> and and you you couldn't do this before without Google Maps and all that stuff. Nowadays, you pop it onto Google Maps and went, whoop, there you go. Yeah, exactly. And right, and and then outside of the area where the cattle mutilations were happening, down to the south, I kind of thought, well, if this has to do with spraying stuff in the air. Why do we have this region down south that wouldn't be downwind from where this is occurring? And I found out it's because it's being deposited in the water, and the water from that creek goes down to the next community south of us, and that's where they were having a rash of mutilations as well, hmm. because their their cows were drinking the water. So you think these? Now can you... you understand? Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And now you understand kind of why when it reaches a situation having to do with environmentalism and big corporations and food chain and everything like that, why the government goes, okay, let's just make this a silly subject. Right, right, right. It, yeah. It's troubling, I guess, though, because from your theory, I guess you could call it, that, that so there's something dangerous going on and someone knows about it, but they're not telling us. That's the that's the troubling part. You know what I mean? It's like I wish they would just, if there's something that we should be aware of, I wish they would just let <laughs> let us know. Well, they might they might be so overwhelmed by in sheer numbers that they don't dare show themselves because they'd be crushed out. It's like having a secret movement of really cool aliens driving around or doing things, trying to help us, but not allowing the bad ones or the guys who are controlling things, rather than with the draconian fist here on this planet, without being found out. Yeah. You know what I mean? In other words, right. yeah, there's there's a good fifth column out there somewhere. And they're trying to do something for us, but they feel a little overwhelmed here. Maybe these guys are hoping whatever's coming back is is going to straighten out the ship. My own personal feeling is that we are going to witness one day the arrival of a fleet of ships containing reptilian humanoids claiming that this planet is theirs, and they left it a long time ago to travel the expanse of space, and now they've come back, and, um, and that um, there's a potential for a conflict with another race of beings whom we call the elves, whom uh, modern mythology has called the angels. Ah. Um, I won't even touch that subject with you on this time around. We'll have to do it again some other time. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's deep. That gets into a whole, a whole other realm of, uh, of right, discussion. Because remember, it's not all physical matter that really matters. Sometimes you've used, you've used that line before. <laughs> no, actually, I haven't. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> the improv, right? Yeah, you're a wordsmith, my friend. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Now, you, so you, you're, not to delve too deeply into that, but you're, you're saying, you know, you think this'll, there'll be a revelation, if you will, of, of the, uh, reptilians. Now, there's a lot, in the UFO community, there's, obviously we're up against this big thing of, like, disclosure and how much the government knows and, and your theory introduces a whole like a whole different strain into the mix, if you will. How much do you think the government knows about the about the reptilians then? A lot? Um, actually I think they the higher levels of it. I mean most everybody right, right, in the right. government's gonna laugh at us just like everybody. Yeah, it's like like my mailman doesn't know anything about it, but <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Right. But um on the highest levels of leadership I don't know, the presidents have admitted that they've been told it's outside their Working knowledge, in other words, you don't need to know. Yeah. Um, so we know that kind of that kind of compartmentalization happens. Um, do I? I think perhaps there's a good possibility that, and George, I mean, um, Ronald Reagan alluded to this. Um, George Schultz and Leonard, not Leonard Brezhnev, I mean, um, yeah, it was um, no, um, the last leader of the Soviet Union as it fell. 
Gorbachev? I had a drinking problem. Gorbachev. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, not the one with the drinking problems. It was Gorbachev with the birth mark on his head. Yep. He had made a statement uh, in an interview with George Stoltz sitting beside him about a conversation he had with Ronald Reagan when, when they went down to a boathouse together and they asked the guards to stay behind. And they, we went down there, strangers. He interrupted the interview to tell everybody that. And Kissinger was in the audience, by the way. He said, we went down there as strangers. And then he says, um, Ron, Ron looked at me and he said, um, uh, what, what would your reaction? He says, would you defend the United States if the United States were attacked by an extraterrestrial force? Yeah. And uh, Gorbachev responded to him about uh, unilateral protection and defenses. In other words, we'll come to your aid if something happens. And Ronald Reagan thanked him for that. Now, the audience kind of laughed, you know, and, and Gorbachev said, well, I just wanted to let everybody know that. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, again, he's going out of his way to bring up this alien thing. Um, I, if the United States, it, as it was inferred, not a global threat was inferred, but an American threat was inferred when he said that to Gorbachev. Now, did he know something, something in advance where maybe our government, not all governments, but maybe just our government leadership has pissed some race off? Mm. Now, what if they came back here to kick our butts? Would they try and solicit the rest of the world to defend them? Interesting, yeah. I by see, lying see. to them, by lying to them about what's really going on and who to shoot at and why? It's real easy when you have human beings by the millions to control them because you can build up mass hysteria with our great media. Yeah. And you can start witch hunts, witch hunts just based on reaction. Look what we gave away all our rights after 2001. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, we raise an interesting point there where you always sort of, uh, you, you hear this concept of the alien invasion, but the, but the way you frame it there, it's almost like, well, maybe, maybe it's not necessarily an alien invasion. Maybe it's just a reprisal from the aliens because we've done something wrong that we, that, you know, we're not, that they, that the public isn't privy to. That's absolutely right. We don't have an idea because they've kept all these goings-on secret between them. So really, as a neutral party, we need to stand back and go, well, what the hell's going on? And let them kind of fight it out amongst each other, not get drawn so quickly up in the battle. Exactly. But see, that, but that's, that's that won't not happen, the way human beings react. No, yeah. that's not the way human beings react. See, and, and with 2,000 years of saying this is the devil, what do you think the reptilians' chances are? Not very good. Well, they may, well, they may be, yeah, they're probably more advanced yeah. than we are, so maybe they are very good chances, but not, not to well, uh, win us over, certainly not, no. Right. I mean, the point being here is they're not going to be able to win our hearts and our minds. They're going to have to come in and disarm us or something like that because we're a violent species. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, not that if this is their planet, then they, they'll claim that they have every right to kind of like bring things back under control because they could say that the aliens that were left behind became demented, too much solar radiation, whatever reasons, they shouldn't have been acting as, as unpoorly as they have been. Yeah. Interesting. You yeah. know, and then you see programs like V come out, which basically go down the same timeline and it's not, it's, you have to understand, it's not me alone. When you see major networks and everything start bringing this up time and time again over the years, I think that's why people go, you know, this John Rhodes guy, he's right on to something. I told because you at the beginning of this conversation, I've had that feeling for a long time. I've, I've, been, I've been deeply intrigued by this whole reptilian thing. Now, you mentioned yeah. this media. And by the way, I don't, take, I don't take the credit for it, see? I don't have the ego to take the credit for it all because um, 
all of this has been, you know, we're just all parts of a big plan. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Somebody said, well, you created it. Well, yeah, I started the conversation. It kind of blossomed into what it has, and it's kind of gotten out of control and crazy. But at the same time, you know, it, it um, uh, my knowledge was only because I'm one of these odd people. When I was younger, I had separation anxiety from family at the age of five by putting being put into foreign countries and boarding schools. So I was at the age of six through eight. I I lived in Saigon, Vietnam during the war. I was there during the Tet Offensive. I had post-traumatic stress disorder at the age of eight years old. My life was never going to be normal. Oh, my God. And when I came back here to the United States, you know, it was hard to fit into society. In my late teens, I was over there in Beirut, Lebanon in the in the mid-70s when the war started there. So I had seen enough of that. Were you part of a military family or something? Yeah. Oh, okay. And my parents were adventurous. They thought, well, we'll just go off and live in the world. You know, we were being told, like in Saigon, we were winning the war. So, you know, they were extravagant people. I didn't remember seeing any other U.S. children there. But point being is that, you know, it's just my family structure didn't allow for normal life. I didn't think once I got out here I was going to be the, the ordinary individual because I just couldn't identify with so much of it. So I started looking into different areas. Yeah. It's almost like, I guess you could say, uh, you know, some people who overcompensate from being blind by having great hearing. I couldn't relate to everybody, so I started investigating a subject that was totally unrelatable and to- totally out of this world, but then turned out to be what it is. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I think that can be said about a lot of people in this field. Yep, absolutely. And you know what? There's a lot of people that reproduce other individuals' work and take credit for it. I mean, I got so disgusted with the UFO community groups because it's just as it's just as morally corrupt um, by theft of information and claims and such like that and by deceit and lies as the rest of human society. It's just a small microcosm of it. But at the same time, you know, um, people, I've seen people who have valid things to bring up, but because they can't break through the glass uh, ceiling of popularity with the small cliques that run the UFO uh, conferences and um, expos, they can't get the information out. That's a shame, but I, I totally hear you because uh, I'm well aware of the <laughs> of the of the seedy underbelly of the UFO research field. Oh, horrible! I, I mean, I know names which I won't mention that here in private conversations before conferences have gone on, heard about some case that they just heard about, and then before the other speaker got up to speak about it, they drew it into their own talk and blew the information out, so it had no impact from the orig- from the origin of the information. When they got up to talk, everybody had heard it already. Oh, that's cheap, man. That's you know, so cheap. that's just that's just the way it is. But you know, I wish somebody would write a book on the, you know, on on UFO community as a, as a social structure because it's very unusual and it's and it's a kind of a dichotomy of 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 of, um, of information uh, warfare. It is. It is. It is. It is information warfare out there. It absolutely is. Well, it's a. It's a I think everybody. Not everybody, obviously, but I think uh, there are people in the field who are they want to be the you know they want to be the the Einstein or the or the Curie or you know they want to be the one that broke this thing. So right. you know they they want to be the right. one that goes down in history as the one who who uh, well, their solved. egos are bigger than their egos are bigger than the big secret. You know what I mean? Exactly. In yeah. Words, right. Because and I've had people say to me. Well, you know, I'm reporting things as they are, and I say, no, if you are taking things like saying with the reptilians that, that their majority of them are evil, and that's all you're focusing on to interview for your interviews and who you're talking about when you write books and things like this, 
then because people are people who do not agree with you are not you're not going to make them feel comfortable to come around you. You're just soliciting bad stories. And I said when 70% of them are neutral or benevolent. To pre present a more factual picture, you have to say that, not just focus on 99% of your work all presenting them in a negative light and then saying, but they're not all like that. Let me get on with how evil they are. Exactly. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And they'll do that to say, well, I never say that. I have that written down in that book saying they're not all evil. Well, okay, but the 99% of your book is focusing on how evil they are. <laughs> well, you raise so, you know, an interesting point here. I, I wanted to ask you, um, now you've been doing this for like 20 years. I was stunned that you don't have a book yet on this. How come you haven't written this out in, in, you know, and put out the, you know, the definitive reptoid book, if you will? Well, the definitive book, um, because I really did meet the men in black. And just you wait. What does that mean? That means just what I said. I really have met men in black. Mm -hmm. And just you wait. In other words, I've met them may be the reason I haven't written it yet. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's not going to be written. Okay. <laughs> that was particularly cryptic. That's why I had to try and get well, you. Well, no, I mean, I, I don't know how, how any better way to put it. Because, you know, when you're... Going, I think if you knew my work well enough by now, I mean, I've written huge amounts of reports and put them out there. They're spread throughout the Internet. and then Oh, yeah, places. absolutely. It's not, like yeah. I haven't, it's not like I haven't had a voice. What happened is um, um, reaching that kind of an audience level um, was for one reason or another um, restraint. But it doesn't mean it's going to be restrained forever. I know a lot more than I've ever said, mm -hmm. and I think that worries some people. Yeah. And I know that makes other people very anxious, but remember, certain information has its time. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well no, I mean I, I wasn't I wasn't besmirching your output because you've put out a no, no, tremendous of amount of material. It's that's what I mean by you know, why it hasn't been collated into book form. It's you know, it's kinda of like the formality issue too, you know, it's like Right, of course. You know. But everybody seems to think that you have to write a book in order to just right, become right. credible. Right, right, right. Okay? And that's just an old perception. Mm -hmm. What you need to do is hear the voice and hear the message, and if that person, no matter where they are, you hear their message. It's nice to have the book to relate back to, but at the same time, information changes, viewpoints change, everything's a little fluid. Right. There are certain perspectives I have now that maybe before I would have expressed differently. Now I'm a little bit more wise. I can sit back and put it in a different language structure that allows people to understand it instead of just saying it where nobody understands it. One of the interesting things is, is that... Um, the majority of people who had contact with the men in black in the very beginning were people who kept trying to direct our attention to the underworld. Hmm. Interesting. Right. Well, now people talking about outer space, even even um, Barker, Gray Barker, and those guys when they were writing their books, you know, they knew too much about flying saucers and stuff. And they talked about the Gray Barker and talked about the men in black. Um, there were cryptic writings even back then that talk about how these guys are moving beyond physical realms and are perceived to maybe being a little bit more local than people would like to imagine. It's easier for us to imagine them being off Earth than to imagine they're living under your feet. Yeah. Or they're, yeah. they're walking in your house and you just can't see them. Yeah, people don't, that, that, yeah, it frightens people, so. Mm -hmm. I told you, like I said again, at the, at the beginning of this conversation, this, this stuff is intriguing and frightening. 
two, <laughs> two, two things that are, that are tantalizing to me. Well, I would, I would challenge you, Tim, to take the word frightening and, re- and, and say exciting because, you know, you're hmm. at the top of the roller coaster. Yes, it's frightening, but at the same time, it's that excitement. You know, they'll take a person, they'll hook them up to EEG and stuff and measure their heart rate and everything. And when they're experiencing fear and excitement, they have the same physiological conditions set up in the human body. It's just that human body puts a label on it. Well, if you can choose to trick your brain to put a different label on it, it can go along with the same sensation, standing at the edge of the diving board. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I certainly... Yeah, it's it, the first time's always scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely... It's it's. Believe me, it's frightening and exciting, for sure. Uh, that's why we do the show. That's, you know, that's why I talk to so many people of different genres, and a lot of this stuff is frightening. It's, <laughs> you know, I think that's why maybe I'm drawn to that. So, yes, exciting for sure. Now, yeah, and it's, it's, it's the mystery. And, you know, another thing is, too, is that my pursuit of the answers to these questions goes beyond just, you know, getting to the bottom of things. I think that by studying ufology, we can discover a lot about different scientific principles we never recognized before because we're watching, we're observing interactions with advanced craft. The more that we study these items and these sightings and sci- abilities for psychics and stuff, I think that, you know, behind every mystery there's a science, but behind every mystery and the science there could be deeper mysteries that are revealed. And that's just the way it is. It's even there's psychic abilities may have physical limitations that can be placed on it by wearing a helmet or something like that. In other words, there's a science to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm going to read you something that most people haven't heard. This is something that kind of gives you an idea of how the world is investigating the subject matter, but our own government saying that it doesn't. I'm reading you here a photocopy I got in 1997, reproved for release. It's a CIA um, uh, telex. Yeah. They're talking about inter- intercepting, transla- uh, intercepting communications. It says here, Japan, subject, Ministry of Defense. Ministry to Study Psychic Powers, UFOs for Future Industry. Source, Tokyo, Kyoto, in English, 0935 GMT, 1993. Text, Japan's bureaucrats are beginning to take the burgeoning New Age industry seriously with a plan to study supernatural phenomena, including psychic powers and even unidentified flying objects. Government officials said on Friday, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry um, officials said that the ministry plans to form a research institute for scientific study of art, culture, and parapsychology, such as telepathy and clairvoyance, for application to next-generation industry. The proposed institute, which will likely be set up in 1995, is the brainchild of, a, of, a, of an industry panel established last November to study creation of an industry more sensitive to human needs for art, inner peace, and other intangible things. The official said that the panel, comprising key figures from a variety of businesses and cultural circles, is accumulating data on the effect of cultural activities such as peace ceremonies and flower arranging on the state of mind through brainwave checks and other scientific explanations. The scientific approach will also be tied with telepathy, UFOs, and other parapsychological and occult phenomenon long ignored but gaining credibility of late in the scientific community. The research would include brainwave checks on those who claim to experience telepathy or study such phenomenon as soothing music triggering quicker growths of plants. The panel will draft an interim report on, on this activity by May, providing concrete ideas for the planned institute. The official said discoveries made at the institute are likely to be applied in a variety of ways to industry, especially for audiovisual equipment manufacturing. <laughs> One example of the possible applications is a home-use device, 
which emits supersonic waves to relax people by giving them the actual illusion that they are sitting in a forest, they said. Huh. Interesting. That's the end of the telex. You know, so it shows how even other governments, as well as ours, they don't dismiss all of this stuff. Even they tell us in the open, and they kind of smirk and wink and nod, you know, when they do these TV shows. They know that there's a scientific principles and realities behind all this stuff. And really, when it comes to global electronics and everything, governments and private industries are very hungry for these occult um, fields. To, because they believe that, you know, if they can discover some kernel of unknown science in it, they maybe apply it to some industry of their own and patent it and such. Like right, that. right, right. Profit off of this stuff. Profit off it. If you can't profit off the psychic stuff, don't let them have it. Exactly, you know? yeah. yeah. That's if they the... had telepathy, how would they charge you for per-minute use? You know, that's what they're trying to figure out. Right, right. So until they can figure uh, it's like the old thing about free energy, you know, until they can figure out a way to put a meter on it, they're not going to let us have it. Right. Well, we know that the liar. We know, we know liars. I'll tell you something. You know, here, here's a simple thing. It's, 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 a, it's a psychological, spiritual trick I learned a mm-hmm. long time ago. If people were able to see the aura, they would know when people are lying to them. But if everybody could see the aura, then what would happen? Well, I'm sure people would design clothes to try and change the colors of their aura so people can't see what they're feeling because of privacy issues. Right. Um, but also, you can see when people are lying. So that would really create a great atmosphere of the world to be able to teach people to do that. When a number of years ago, I was sitting there. No man would ever have sex again, John. No, well, when you realize there's something better than sex, why go back? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> um, I remember once sitting at a in a in a, um, in a um, meditation circle, and it was about nine o'clock at night. And before the medication circle formed, this group had gr- gathered together, just nice new people who were into meditation stuff. There was this woman, she goes, well, tell them what your colors are. I said, what? She goes, my daughter can see the aura. And I said, really? She goes, oh, mom. And she said, well, tell them what his colors are. And she's like, oh, oh, my God, okay. Yeah. It's like she was being asked to do it. She hadn't, she's not making this up because she's just looking around you going, blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. You know, that type of thing. Right, right, right. And afterwards, I was sitting there going, well, that child seemed like really she was seeing something. She seemed so not attached to, oh, look at me, I can see the aura thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, and so I said, I was sitting down there thinking, well, what's different about that child than me? And why can the child see the aura where I can't? And and while we were sitting there in the meditation circle, I decided I was going to look at one individual and see if I could see his aura across the circle. And I was looking at him, kind of relaxed, trying to get my body relaxed. I closed my eyes and opened to him, and I couldn't see anything. I did this repeatedly. Now, most people would stop. Okay? <laughs> most people would stop. <laughs> but me, no, not me. I got to go the extra mile. Yeah. And um, so what happened was is I was sitting there, and I, and I kept closing my eyes, and now Inside the human body, you have a brain that's a computer, but what powers the brain is the chemistry happening in it, which is controlled by the heart. Chemical reactions can change internally in your body, around your heart region, when you, by your thinking. Yeah. Okay, and this is called emotions. This is what drives the energy behind psychic experiences. And what I did was I started thinking that this child, the only thing different between this child and me is the fact that this is still a child and I am not. Yeah. Right? And so what I did was I started closing my eyes 
and then moving the emotions around in my chest. Like you can almost anticipate a different emotion coming up, like you're turning around, like you're messing with your own emotions like an actor would be to see if he can reach different emotions and move them around in his chest as he shuts his eyes. Mm -hmm. And and I was doing that, and I kept opening my eyes, and I would see no difference. Now, it got to a point at which I said, um, the only difference is that child is still a child and I'm not. So I closed my eyes. And I promise your audience, and I know you have a massive audience out there, please call or write Tim an email and tell them if this works because it worked for me. And if we can get enough of you to do that out there, we might actually start doing something, which is you close your eyes in a relaxed position. You imagine yourself in a dark place. And in the dark place, I imagined a large, rough-hewn, egg-shaped boulder of granite or gray rock. And it was about maybe five and a half feet tall with the fat end on the bottom. And from on top, a pool of light coming down gently. And from behind the rock, I could see a child peering out. And I was thinking to myself, well, I didn't, I didn't elicit that child. And I didn't think, oh, I want to see a child. I just saw him. And when I saw the child look out from behind the rock shyly, as soon as my eyes made contact with that child's eyes, I recognized that child was me at about five years old. And it set up some sort of an emotional, psychological condition where when I opened my eyes, I swear to God, I swear to God, may God curse me to an attorney to mean that, that man's aura across the room had lit up. Oh, wow. A bright blue neon bulb, not all of it for feet away. I could see it for about four or five inches, but it was vibrating like the surface of the sun, streaming out these vibration colors of blue. And I was sitting there, I was trying not to get excited because I knew this was an emotional thing. So I'm rationalizing now, going, don't get excited. Right, right. Don't get excited. And then I, I thought to myself, okay, I didn't want to turn away because I didn't want to, I just didn't want to turn away. You know, I was afraid I'd lose it. I turned away, and then I looked again. It was still there. And then I, 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 I closed my eyes, and I opened it. It was still there. It was like a condition, a vibratory condition had set up. And then what I did was I started thinking to myself, wow, maybe, how am I able to see this? Now, as soon as I closed my eyes and I started thinking logically with my now left brain, yeah. all of a sudden I opened my eyes, and it was gone. Huh. In other words, the child lives in the imaginative right brain, and there's some triggers in there that if you allow them to take place, they can connect your sensor, your sensory net, your aura, your, um, your, your central nervous system, and even the pheromones that you're breathing in to be able to analyze all that to actually set up a condition to see the person's aura. But as soon as you start start leaving that right-brain child and going into left-brain logic adult, it, it went. Hmm. Interesting. And and for me, I'll, I like I said, I swear, may God strike me dead in the rest of my lifetimes or whatnot, you know, or eternal hell. I swear to everybody that actually occurred. And I believe it's nothing more than some ancient, maybe perhaps, psychological, mental, emotional thing that you can actually reproduce in your body to allow you to have these phenomenal events. And the ancients knew these things. Uh, they've had, uh, many of them, for how many hundreds of years, did nothing but sit down and smell the roses and think. That's fascinating, this this uh, technique, I guess you could call it. So I would I would suggest mm-hmm. people do it and let me know if, uh, if it works. So, so the, the, to, to sort of 
distill it a little better to make it a little cleaner for people. You imagine this boulder? Just close your eyes in a nice peaceful spot while you're trying to look at somebody's aura. And then it's best if you're working late at night or something because it has to do with the fatigue of the brain to allow yourself to get in a more relaxed state. Mm -hmm. And then just focus on somebody, close your eyes, and then keep opening them. And because every time you close your eyes, you want to move the chemistry around in your chest to solicit some sort of a slight difference in an emotion. It's almost like tuning in a radio. Yeah. You you kind of set up, you're relaxing, but you're trying to stir your chest up to pull up a little different of emotion. And then you, because you're trying to feel like a child. You're going, your uplifted heart, no fear, all of that playfulness. You're trying to kick, kick that thinking and that feeling back up in your body at the same time as you imagine the dark spot with a large boulder about five and a half feet tall, egg-shaped, rough-hewn, in a pool of light, dark around it, and imagine yourself as a small, innocent child of about four, five, six, looking from around the other side of the boulder, peeking at you. And hmm. imagine locking your eyes with your eyes of yourself as a child at five or six. All right, folks, try that and let me know if it works. I'll give it a shot. Then I'll, I'll try. Eyes. Then open your eyes and tell me what you see. And if it doesn't work once, try it over and over again. If it happened to me, and I swear to God this is the truth, I cannot be that unusual. There have to be. There's millions of people out there. And as long as we get a wave of people saying, oh, my gosh, I tried that and something really did happen, the word will spread. Exactly. I will give it a try myself, and I think other folks should do it, too. So we'll, we'll, we'll try it out. Um, yeah. it's, the whole it's the whole child movement thing. Back in the 60s, they had the child, the child movement, you know. And so it's, it's, a, it's a different angle on that, but it's just, it's just something to try. Okay. Now, we're, we're speaking here at uh, the end of 2012, but folks are going to be hearing this at the beginning of uh, 2013. What do you have on tap uh, for the new year? Any, any plans, uh, any, any presentations, any appearances, anything you, know, you want to plug here uh, for the new year? Well, I am, I am on hold right now and doing some projects because I'm getting the Reptoids Research Center uh, situated up um, alongside the Yosemite National Park in California, where sightings have been. Um, we're just trying to figure out how to keep the bears off the property right now so we can sit out there and UFO watch without any <laughs> yeah. from bears, which is what the problem we're having right now. Um, so I've kind of put things on hold. I am actually currently in conversations with one of the major networks about a TV show, so we'll have to wait to see if that comes about. You know how Hollywood is. Oh, yeah. You know, they can pull you in and say all kinds of things, but the manifestation of such things is yet to be seen. So exactly. we'll find out where we go. But it is one of the major, most respected networks and um, cable networks, so we're looking forward to doing something rather unusual for nice. the public. Nice. That sounds great. Well, people can stay mm -hmm. tuned at reptoids.com to find out uh, more from you and uh, upcoming stuff. And, and as we said here, dive into a wealth of uh, information and material that you've produced there. So. People should definitely check it out yeah. if they haven't been there yet. Check it out. And on that note, I, I gotta say, this has been like, I say this all the time, but it's true here. This is the fastest two hours I've done in a long, long time. Uh, just, just completely flew by and went down so many avenues that I didn't even expect to get into as, as I sat down to talk to you. And, and it's just been fascinating and, and just a tremendous conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. 
And I, I really hope we can have you back on the show again in the future and, and, and talk even more because uh, I feel like we could talk for <laughs> another two hours beyond this and probably two more after that and, and on and on and on because it's been it's such an enlightening conversation, John. I really have appreciated it. Talk until the sun comes up, absolutely. And I've, I've, I appreciate the opportunity of being able to talk to you, Tim, and also your many viewers and, and, and listeners out there. You know, because you do a good job and you have a good roster of conversations up on your site. And, and again, like I told you, I don't do very many television or radio interviews over the years. And for some reason, your name peripherally kept popping up in my, in my awareness. And I just felt that for some reason, maybe it's the audience that needs to hear the message. I had to give this interview and, and meet with you personally. And, and it is such a critical time coming up, but I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I really do uh, appreciate you saying those kind words and for coming on the show, and I wish you the best of luck, and hopefully uh, this is just the first of many conversations between us. Thank you, Tim. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to John Rhodes for coming on the show and giving us so much time. Be sure to check out his website, www.reptoids.com. Pretty simple, all one word, reptoids. R-E-P-T-O-I-D-S dot com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And this time around on the program, we have a slew of responses to last week's edition of the program, featuring Skeptic Sharon Hill of DoubtfulNews.com. Before I dive into these, I think I've got about five emails here from various listeners. It is really just the tip of the iceberg. The feedback on this episode was overwhelming and from a whole variety of different quarters, not just the paranormal fans, but also the skeptics as well who heard about the show. And I'd say really the responses ran about 75% positive, 25% negative, which is actually much better than I expected although I should not have been surprised considering how serious-minded the BOA audio listeners are about getting to the bottom of these paranormal mysteries. So I tried to pick some of the emails that gave me some jumping-off points for discussion, and on that note, let's dive on in. The first one comes from Tyler Kochjohn, who is a familiar name most likely to folks who tune into Paratopia and Project Archivist. He is a frequent guest on those programs, and I've been fortunate enough to interact with him on a limited basis via those shows as well. He enjoyed the program quite a bit and reached out to me via email to share his thoughts, and here's what he has to say. This was a superb episode. Thank you for putting this together and putting it out there. I hope you get lots of positive feedback. Perhaps you'll consider doing a second episode with Ms. Hill a bit earlier than the end of the year to explore how, or if, your interview changed things for her. Did she get invited to be a participant in paranormal events? Did anyone reach out to her to explore that middle ground she says she is seeking? How did her skeptical colleagues react to her being on BOA? And, of course, it would be interesting to hear if anything changed for you as well. Thanks again, and best wishes, Tyler Cokejohn. 
Thank you for writing it, Tyler. Thank you for your kind words about the program. Very happy that you enjoyed it. I definitely want to involve Sharon in the Year in Review episode, since that's kind of what spawned her appearance on the program in the first place. But you hit the nail on the head that there is a lot more to discuss regarding the relationship between skeptics and paranormalists, and whether we can find a middle ground between the two fields. I can say that her skeptical colleagues were very happy with her appearance on BOA, as far as I can tell. A lot of skeptical websites linked up to the program and probably heard about BOA for the very first time. Hopefully, we opened up some eyes as well and brought in some folks who are kind of on the fence or in the middle and want to hear more about what we're presenting with regards to these paranormal mysteries. Beyond that, I can tell you that there was quite the kerfluffle over Sharon's appearance on the program. There was a lot of controversy in a lot of ways. Sharon has a blog post regarding this, as many people have spoken out and said that skeptics should focus on issues like finding a cure for cancer and leave the ghost hunters and UFO researchers alone. It is at Sharon's website, doubtful.wordpress.com. So check that out, folks, if you want to get in on that debate that is happening. So I'm in a bit of a ramble mode here this week, folks, so bear with me as I respond to all this stuff. I definitely want to get Sharon back on the show. I want to involve her in the year in review episode, but I definitely want to just have her on for a pure conversation again in the future. So keep an eye out. Season 8, the invitation has been extended. I'd love to have Sharon back on the show to explore all these issues and explore the fallout from her appearance on the program. Now, before I get to the next email, I do want to address one thing that kind of uh, stood out to me, and that was it appears I kind of ruffled some feathers a little bit with my juggalo joke on the program last week, where I called Ghost Hunters the insane clown posse of the paranormal and said that no one takes them seriously. That's just my opinion, folks. You know that. I have railed on Ghost Hunters continuously here on the program, but... I want to say, I don't begrudge them. They can go out and do what they want to do. If they want to spend the weekend looking for ghosts and trying to get EVPs, that's perfectly fine with me. What I was trying to get across to Sharon is that, really, at the end of the day, they're harmless. And I felt that, really, not really a good place to focus the skeptical lens, if you will. Perhaps I could have worded it better, but when you got the chance to make a juggalo joke, you go for it. That's my personal policy in life and on the program. So apologies to any ghost hunters who I may have offended by calling them juggalos. It wasn't a personal attack, more just my view of the overall landscape of the paranormal with regards to where skeptics really should be focusing their attention. Next email comes from Brandon. No hometown listed, here's what he has to say. Listened to your interview with Sharon Hill twice now. It was pretty refreshing to hear a true skeptic, and not just an angry, negative debunker. She seemed pretty nice, and I agree with a lot of what she said. I love crazy stories and hearing about weird things, but I'd also like to get honest resolutions as well. Brandon. Well, you pretty much nailed it there, Brandon. That's my perspective as well. I do love the crazy stories, 
and I'm never going to stop featuring crazy stories on the program. But at the end of the day, I want solutions to these mysteries. I want solutions to these mysteries before they put me in the ground. That's why I really have gotten behind the idea of trying to build this bridge between the open-minded skeptics and the skeptical paranormal followers. We can get together, folks. We can come to some kind of mutual working agreement in some respects, I think, and really get to the bottom of this. There's always going to be zealots on both sides of the fence. I heard from people, and I'm not going to read their stuff here on the show, but who were just adamant that all skeptics are awful, terrible people and really kind of missed the message of what the program was about last week, which was maybe we're all wrong. We're clearly fighting each other and not getting to the bottom of these mysteries, so something needs to change, and perhaps building this bridge between the two sides is a step in the right direction. I like to think so, and a lot of the listeners do as well. So that's kind of where I stand on it, and the reason why Sharon was on the show is pretty much kind of what Brandon said here. She's a true skeptic, but not an angry, negative debunker, and that really is refreshing, especially having spent so much time in this field and having heard from so many ardent skeptics who just shut you down anytime you try to bring something paranormal up to them. That's pretty much uh, my response here to Brandon's email. Thank you for writing in, Brandon. Much appreciated. Our next email comes from Will, who also echoes these similar thoughts. He says, I'm only about half an hour into the show, and I think I'm going to enjoy the conversation. But isn't it kind of a shame that we feel the need to label ourselves as skeptics, non-skeptics, believers, and so on? I think that looking at the unknown slash esoteric with these sort of filters and definitions in place from the start, is very limiting. We should all try to use reason and skepticism, but we should also not lose our sense of wonder and openness to new possibilities. In my opinion, that is the only way forward. Anyhow, looking forward to the rest of the show, it should be a stimulating exchange. Will. Will pretty much echoes the overarching theme here of finding a middle ground. I do definitely agree with him that part of the problem, I think, is these self-labels. Skeptic, believer, non-skeptic, paranormalist. Maybe a lot of these conflicts and differences of opinion would be allayed if we had some kind of word for the folks in the middle ground. That's a possibility. A lot of this as we talked about with Sharon Hill, comes down to semantics. And the semantics of what side you're on definitely sort of create this schism and conflict between both sides. Because I think there are a lot of people out there who don't call themselves believers, who don't call themselves skeptics, and are just genuinely interested in these mysteries and want to get to the bottom of them. That's where I am, folks. I'm not a true believer. I'm not a skeptic. If anything... I'm a very cynical paranormal enthusiast, and I'm trying to bring us all together. That's what I'm trying to do here. I don't understand, in some ways, the rigidity of some folks who refuse to listen. But that is what we're up against here as we move forward trying to build the bridge. Now, those are the positive emails. In the interest of fairness, I'm going to read a couple of the more negative emails 
because I want to give all sides a chance to sound off. On the BOA forum, Zafrella said, Good interview, though her giggling got pretty annoying by the end. Some of the conversation sounded a little flirtatious. Other than that, she displayed the typical skeptical arrogance that she knows better and more than others, that her research is better, so people must be saved from their own stupidity, that people will believe like she does if they have the same information that she has ferreted out. Her research might well be better than most, but to not allow people to make their own mistakes is arrogance. Zafrella. Thank you for posting that on the forum, Zafrella. First of all, i got to defend myself here. I was not flirting with Sharon. She is a married woman. Don't try and get me in trouble here. You're going to get me beat up by Mr. Hill, Zafrella. So don't do that. And I will defend Sharon also here with regards to the giggling. Perhaps that's just her personality or she was nervous. I didn't really notice it too bad. I was kind of laughing as well as the interview got underway. Trying to ease the tension a little bit because this wasn't like a normal BOA audio episode where we're all sort of on the proverbial same team. I'm sure Sharon probably felt a little uneasy at first coming on the program as one of her skeptical colleagues called it entering the Viper's Den, which is hilarious to me because <laughs> if anything, uh, we're more of an opium den than a Viper's Den here on Banal of America Audio, so we're uh, far more chilled out than that. So I think there was probably just a little bit of uh, unease on both sides of the fence as we started the conversation. Beyond that, I'm not really here to defend Sharon's perspective. It's unfortunate that you felt that she was displaying, as you say, typical skeptical arrogance. I didn't find Sharon particularly arrogant. There were some points that I probably could have and maybe should have challenged her more on, and in the future... When we do another episode, I probably will. But this was kind of the getting to know you episode. This was kind of the let's lay the cards out on the table program and find out where Sharon stands on this stuff. And when I have her on the show again, we'll go deeper into this stuff and probably get into areas where we disagree on a lot of things. And this is not really specifically in response to Zafrella, but I'm going to kind of go off script again here and just say that I did sense in some quarters that people thought I was going to have Sharon Hill on the program and really take it to her and really slam her or go after her. I'm surprised that people felt that way because I don't know what program they've been listening to the last seven years. I'm always more than happy to play devil's advocate and I'm more than always happy to challenge the guest's perspective to a degree. But as we emphasize week in and week out on this show... These are conversations. They're not debates. They're conversations. And that's what that program was. That was a conversation between Sharon and I to see where we might be able to come together and really for me and the BOA Audio listeners to learn a little bit more about the skeptical community. We've talked about them at length on this show numerous, numerous times. But that was the first time we actually got somebody on the show who was a part of that community And that, I think, is just a tremendous opportunity to learn. So I guess that's pretty much my response to Zafrella. I'm happy that you thought the interview was good, even though you were disappointed with Sharon's presentation. I think that's really key to the whole episode, in a way. As long as the conversation is engaging, 
Whether you disagree or agree with the guest, that's up to you. If it makes you think, that's the point of the show. All right, now we've really beaten this horse dead, so we're going to just do one more email here regarding the Sharon Hill edition of the program, and this one comes from David, also posted on the BOA forum, and it was a longer post, but I'm just going to read the first paragraph. Here's what he has to say. I actually stopped listening after about 15 minutes. She was starting to annoy me, and Tim, you were not helping by agreeing with everything she said. My objections were that she has her mind made up, that if someone sees something unusual, they have made a mistake, and that there has to be a better scientific explanation. That annoys me, because she's saying she can't be wrong, or science can't be wrong. Some scientists realize this, and will take these experiences seriously and look into it. That's what science is all about. The others are too worried about grant money, tenure, and their reputations. That's not science. David. As I said, David had more to say than that, but I wanted to kind of stop right there so I didn't do too much feedback here on the program. First of all, David, as I said on the forum, I have a hard time really responding to someone who only listened to 15 minutes of the program. And, actually, if you'd listened to the remainder of the show, you would realize that, because that's one of my issues that I addressed with Sharon, since she called out Banal of America without actually having listened to our program. Ironically enough, though, however, I do not necessarily disagree with David's perspective here with regards to science. Let's take Sharon out of the equation here, and let's just talk about science. I made this point to her on the program, and it's something I think we really kind of need to go back to and explore more. Science, in my opinion, has done a pretty lousy job of getting to the bottom of the paranormal. As I said on the show, I was quoting Jacques Vallée, if science doesn't solve this, then science is impotent. Science can't unlock these paranormal enigmas. And that's one of my big problems with mainstream science in general. So... That's kind of my take on it, and just to be clear, I'm talking about the big dogs. I'm talking about UFOs, Bigfoot, and really, conspiracy theory does not fall under the realm of science, but I also think, I guess you could say, sociology or journalism hasn't looked into conspiracy theories very well at all. Okay, so that wraps up the Sharon Hill responses. I got tons more, and I'm sure I'm going to get even more beyond that as well. Thank you to everybody who wrote in. Much appreciated. This is probably the longest BOA audio listener feedback ever, so let's wrap it up. Big thanks to David, Zafrella, Will, Brandon, and Tyler for writing in. And if you want to reach out to me and be a part of future installments of BOA audio listener feedback, you can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Or head on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button. Or you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. It is BOA's paranormal playground where we discuss the world of esoterica and pop culture. Additionally, I am on Facebook and Twitter, so you can find me there. Just punch in Benal, and my profile will come right up. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good. 
and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And finally, let's throw in the plug here for Benal of America on Facebook. We are up to 914 likes. The big 1,000 is well within reach. So if you have not checked out Benal of America on Facebook, please do so and please like us. And if you're wondering what you may find at Benal of America on Facebook right now, since the last time you heard from me, I posted a set of choice cuts, classic editions of the program that folks may have enjoyed during the big blizzard this past weekend. And I also posted an article here from Gawker.com regarding the cruise ship that is stranded out at sea right now that is uh, relevant with regards to the Kendall Carver edition of BOA Audio. So if you like the Kendall Carver program, head on over to Benal of America on Facebook where we link up to a really wild article about what's going on on that cruise ship that is stuck out in the ocean. So those are the means to get in touch with me, the email, the forum, the Facebook, the Twitter, all that good stuff. Send me your thoughts on the program. Send me your feelings on BOA. I'm always interested in the thoughts of the BOA audio listeners, and I always do my best to get back to folks and, if possible, feature them here on BOA audio listener feedback. Okay, well, we have gone way deep here into the end segment of the program, so let's try and wrap up the various final moments of the show so we can all get on with our lives. <laughs> Starting with, of course, giving thanks to the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Since the last time you heard from me, we have yet to post any new columns at Benal of America, but I'm sitting on two new pieces from Regan Lee and Marla Pena, so stay tuned to the website for those. And hopefully, in the next few weeks, maybe a month or so, we'll be rolling out a refurbished version of Benal of America. I guess you could almost call it Benal of America 3.0, and we've got some great folks working on that. So hopefully in the not-too-distant future, you will see some big changes at BOA. But until then, stop by the website for your esoteric news and opinion needs. Now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the Benal of America franchise. How do you do that? That's simple. You just head on over to BOA and click the PayPal button. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the internet and you want to make a snail mail donation, there is a P.O. box for that very purpose. Just send your donation to Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866, and the complete address can be found at Benal of America under the PayPal button. As always, it bears repeating, folks, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. 
on the next edition of BOA Audio, we're going to welcome author Artie Sixkiller Clark, who will share her revelatory and unique research into American Indian experiences with UFOs and ETs, as chronicled in her new book, Encounters with Star People. As you'll hear on the episode, I absolutely loved this book. It is tremendous. And at the risk of repeating myself next week, what I'll say here is that these are stories that were personally told to Artie Sixkiller Clark by Native Americans who had these amazing experiences and only told a handful of people, maybe two or three confidants, and Artie Sixkiller Clark was one of them. These are stories that nobody in the world of the paranormal has ever heard before until they were published in her book, and they are amazing stories, folks. As I'm sure you know, I am particularly jaded about UFO stories, but these tales resonated with me in a big way. They were just tremendous, and I cannot wait to bring Artie on the program here to share some of these stories and insights with the BOA audio listeners. And in addition to that, we're going to also explore the culture of American Indians, including their preferred nomenclature, Native American reservations, and the boarding school era of Indian education. So we're going to learn a lot of information about Native Americans that we haven't talked about here on the show in the past. That's on the next edition of the program. Artie Sixkiller Clark, author of the book Encounters with Star People. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to John Rhodes for coming on the show. Check out Reptoids.com. And thanks to David, Zafrella, Will, Brandon, and Tyler for writing in on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio Listeners, the folks who tune in to the very end of the show, even on an end cap like this one that is super long. Thank you for your enduring support of the program, and thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.